Welcome to Joe Dawowski, a podcast devoted to the life and work of actor, writer, poet, playwright, novelist, editor, comics writer, musician, puppeteer, mime, painter, and so much more, including director Alejandro Jodorowsky. I'm Doug Tilly, and on this episode, we're looking at a trio of Jodorowsky comic projects from the 1970s and 80s. We're starting with Jodorowsky's 1978 collaboration with Mobius, The Eyes of the Cat, then moving on to 1984's The Jealous God with art from Silvio Cadello, and finishing with Jodorowsky's first young adult work, The Magical Twins, with art from Jodorowsky's frequent collaborator, George Bess. Joining me on this comic journey are two wonderful co-hosts. First up is my usual collaborator on Cinema Smorgasbord Podcast. It's my own magical twin, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I'm pretty good, Doug. What's going on with you? Liam, I've been reading a lot of comic books lately. Beyond just these three? No, absolutely not. Oh, okay. All right. All right. I wasn't sure. <laughs> but, but when I talk about these particular comics, they are a lot, I will say. I think Have you been true. reading comic books? I, sh- I guess I should ask, since I'm gonna, you're asking me questions, I'm going to throw it back at you. Yeah, no, you I have. reading a lot of comic books? I, I, I don't know what qualifies as a lot, considering I used to have like a real habit, like a sure. like a, over 100 a month habit. Oh, I remember comics. our intervention. <laughs> yes. What? <laughs> uh, but no, recently, um, at the local library has a very large sort of graphic novel selection. So sure. when mm-hmm. we go to the library with my daughter to get her books, I might pick up a couple things. And so I've been getting back into some stuff. I just finished um, a very short one by Neil Gaiman called The the Emerald something, like The Emerald uh, uh, Agency or The Emerald something. Uh, anyways, <laughs> it's a it's a reimagining of Sherlock Holmes, only oh. it's, it's in a H.P. Uh, Lovecraft old gods world. Uh, mm-hmm. In which uh, Sherlock Holmes is is doing his thing in a world in which all of the royalty on the planet are descended from old gods, and so occasionally um, uh, humans who don't think we should be under the rule of old gods uh, do horrible violence to them, and Sherlock Holmes has to figure out what to do about that. And uh, is that is it's that very a weird. study in emerald? Yeah, there you go, a study in emerald. Thank you, Doug. Yeah. I appreciate. I think that. it's actually it was a short story first. I remember reading it. A few years back, and I guess they've turned it into a graphic novel. Oh, I didn't know that. Was it the short story also by Neil Gaiman? Yes. Oh, okay, great. I had never read it. I've read a lot of his short stories, though. I wonder what collection it's in. Um, what, what What? am I, some sort of Neil Gaiman expert? No, I have a podcast <laughs> devoted to Alejandro Jodorowsky. <laughs> <laughs> and with us always on Jodorowsky is the wonderful writer-director, Julia Marchesi. How are you today, Julia? Hi, I am hunky-dory. How are you? I'm doing so well. You know, recently, Julia, we, uh, Liam and I, had the wonderful privilege to be a guest on your podcast, The Horror Movie Survival Guide, Uh, and what a pleasure it was to be able to spend a little time speaking with you and conversing with you and getting to spend time, you know, uh, with you and your wonderful co-host there, talking about non-Jodorowsky things, not that I don't enjoy speaking about Jodorowsky, but just kind of going into our own personal histories a little bit. Yeah, because we don't really get to talk to each other about our personal lives too much on the podcast. So I, you know, I know you through this. We, I know your feelings on Jodorowsky, your feelings on Dick Miller. These things I know, but uh, who who you are in real life? Eh. Well, <laughs> so it was nice to to get to know you a little bit. Well, for anyone who is curious, and I don't know why you would be about Liam and my own real life, you can get a little bit of a glimpse of that on that episode, um, which uh, I hope people enjoy when it gets out into the world. Julia, we've talked a lot about comic projects on this podcast, including an entire episode devoted to the Incall. But when we approach material like this, which is not as kind of uh, documented, not as wrote about, not as discussed as the in-call is, do you feel a little bit intimidated by the, uh, by approaching it? And especially with the idea that we're going to be talking about it for the, you know, the following 90 minutes or so. 
I mean, I feel so out of my depth talking about comic books anyway. <laughs> <laughs> like, it doesn't really matter to me. You know, t- taking on Incal, it, it, you know, that was the really intimidating one. Yes. Because that, I think we've been off more than we could chew with that. That was so many that we read for the, for that, you know. And this is, <laughs> these are quite short. So I was actually it, it, yeah, prepared to go in for an Incal style. Like, okay, this is going to take up some time. And I was like, oh, these are all pretty short. This is okay. So it just, there's just a lot of information smashed into them. So trying to extract that is the tricky part. I kind of went into when I was choosing, let's say, the material for this particular episode, the three uh, books we're going to discuss. I was like, oh, this will be comparatively easy. And in terms of length, yeah, it, it certainly is a lot less than you're right. In, in retrospect, maybe we could have done three episodes on the three books of the Incall. But uh, for this one, I was like, okay, this will go much more smoothly. But while I was reading them, I was like, the, you know, these are so dense and, and, um, difficult in a lot of ways that I wish I had, you know, a little bit more uh, background in what we're going to be discussing. But I think that's why it's fun that we're going to get all three of our perspectives on it. I do want to ask you, Julia, what is your skill at drawing? Oh, uh, I didn't expect that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's okay. Like I have a picture that I did in college where we were doing uh, art, like art class project sure. uh, for my stage, my stage background. And I managed to like once be in the zone and draw this like incredible picture that my parents have framed in their house. And I was like, I don't know how I did that. I'll never do that again. I was just like, I don't know what happened. But no, they're fine. I can draw like little cute cartoons and stuff like that. But like, if you want me to actually draw you or something, it would be laughable. What do you think about like the idea of drawing being like a muscle? So if, if like if I needed to draw a horse right now, it would be unrecognizable as a animal. <laughs> like I just couldn't do it whatsoever. It just would not look like a horse. But if I practiced every single day, sure. is there a limit to how good I could get at drawing that horse? Uh, yeah, there's a limit. Obviously, yeah. like you're going to get to a, a level where you don't get any better, but you can certainly get way, way, way better, right? But that's with anything. If I wanted to devote my time to playing the harpsichord, like I could become a harpsichord master if I wanted to be. Uh, but I'd rather talk to you about Joe Dabrowski. So, but <laughs> if I could draw, I mean, draw, I think drawing is an incredible skill. And I you know I think it's amazing how everyone has their own style, just like everyone sure. does when they're making a movie or they're making a song or whatever. Like it's very recognizable. And going through these very different artistic styles was very, very interesting. Liam, could you draw a horse if I asked you to on command? No. No, not at all. No, not even. I I have no skills with drawing. I can't even do like something that would be kind of rudimentary and, and, and you'd still be able to figure out what it is. I am terrible. I, I have never been able to draw anything ever. Now, the two of you might think that I'm just bringing this up for no reason, but it is something I was thinking about a lot while I was reading these books simply because I find myself in awe of the art in all three of these projects, even if I don't necessarily like them all equally, uh, or appreciate, I should say, all of them equally. When I'm looking at it, just the idea, particularly of trying to bring to some sort of visual life the descriptions that Jodorowsky must have been giving these artists, the idea that this, you know, this is how one person would interpret that, this is how another person would, just going back to what you were saying, Julia, to me, that's like a magic trick. It's like an unbelievable skill that I can't even kind of wrap my head around how it works. Because when I close my eyes and try to think of what a horse looks like, I can sort of see it in my brain, but translating that to the page would be very difficult. Now try to translate something that doesn't exist (laughs) into the page and having (laughs) to bring your own creativity to it. It's just another level. And especially when you have to then tie into the storytelling part of it. What I'm saying is comic book artists, people who are involved in that uh, area of art, 
they're they're magicians. They're uh, incredible people, and that's something that I do want to point out and celebrate because this episode is really devoted to Alejandro Jodorowsky, of course, because this is Jodorowsky, a podcast devoted to Alejandro Jodorowsky. But I want to make sure that we give proper uh, respect to the artists that are bringing his vision to some sort of life. Doug, Before- I, I feel like you're setting me up here. How do you mean? Because I that was really nice. I one of these artists, I am going to be un. Un, no, I think we're uh, all repentingly cruel to. We're, I'm we're going to say the... mean things about his art. <laughs> no, I think we're all in agreement. We know what this is. We get. We know we're going to get there. It's okay. Yeah, I don't think okay. any of us are going to. You don't have to be mean, but you could just be truthful. Yeah, I, be, show your truth to us, Liam. And no, that's perfectly reasonable. And frankly, I was not setting you up whatsoever, Liam, because I have a very similar feeling to you. But I still kind of, I, even if it's art that I don't particularly care for. I certainly still have a lot of respect for the skill of the person putting that work together. And I also rec- I want to recognize that part of the difficulty here is, well, here's a world full of creatures that are not human. And they need to be recognizable as figures that you're going to follow as characters throughout a piece of work. And it's like, how do you create new designs for each one of those in a way that is also being described to you by a person who isn't necessarily tied entirely to reality at all times. No, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to talk about these things. Liam, no, one, no, no one's going to be mad at you. <laughs> Before I, mean, we get- I mean, I'm not saying anyone's going to be mad. I just was like, and, and technically you're right. But I mean, I think a lot of things take skill that I also think are bad. And so it's hard <laughs> sometimes to like, to like, you know, express like, yeah, I could never do what this person does. And I hate it. Uh, and so like, you know, that, that, that's, and I think it's for me going to become a thing. Cause I, I personally feel like when we get to that comic, that is more of a problem for me than the other non sequitur things that make it confusing that that's that that all that stuff bothers me a lot less so it's, Liam, it's gonna be, i think you well, should I, relax I, I think it's the same as i think it's the same as animation right like i'm very particular sure, about sure. animation and there's some animation styles i love don bluth is the fucking master sure but then there's stuff like that the kind of like really ugly early 90s nickelodeon style i'm like i just can't watch it man that kind of art like my eyes say no and i think that there's the same with anything right it's an objective subjective thing art and if somebody likes it somebody doesn't like it and that's fine. And so we talk about it and people say, well, same with film, right? Like two people see the same film and one person hates it, one person doesn't. And you go, okay, it's just, that's how art works. I like that turn of phrase, my eyes say no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in a particular work here, Liam's, Liam's eyes are going to say no. But we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Before we get into the three works we're going to discuss on this episode, I want to do uh, a little coverage of some of the recent announcements and news in the Alejandro Jodorowsky verse as a whole. Uh, it'll be too late as of the release of this episode, but on our most recent episode of Jodorowsky, which covered the film Tusk, we mentioned an announcement about the expanding of the comic book Jodoverse through Humanoids, which announced on Free Comic Book Day, which is the day that we're recording this. Uh, they're going to be previewing an ambitious new graphic novel line based on the Incall, the classic graphic novel by Alejandro Jodorowsky and Mobius. This is a uh, quote from uh, Humanoid CEO Fabrice Giger. Four decades after its publication, the world of the Incall remains a shock to the system and a transcendent work. This new Incall Universe project to which Alejandro Jodorowsky has given his blessing will open the door for a new generation of readers to discover all new adventures featuring John DeFool, the Meta Baron, Kill Wolfhead, and the Incall. That's something that we actually were wondering about a little bit. We knew that the, there was a Kill Wolfhead book that was part of this new line, but this uh, this quote from, uh, from Fabrice suggests that 
John DeFool and the Incall itself, they're all going to be tied into these new works. Um, it's something that I know we have kind of mixed feelings about. These comics themselves include Psychoverse by Mark Russell and Yannick Paquette, Dying Star by Dan Waters and John Davis Hunt, and Kill Wolfhead by Brandon Thomas and Pete Woods. If you are interested um, in checking out those those works, well, as of today, Free Comic Book Day, there's sort of a preview, I guess, of all three of those graphic novels. I am I'm feeling like I have a responsibility to at least check them out. Uh, so uh, today is May 7th. That's the free comic book day. Um, and uh, I'm hoping that maybe on the next episode uh, that we record of Jodowski, I'll have some sort of kind of maybe small compressed thoughts on that, though. Of course, it doesn't tie directly into the work of Jodorowsky outside of it being based on his ideas. What do you think, Julia, about the fact that Jodorowsky has apparently signed off on this? I don't think that's something we had confirmed on the most recent episode. Uh, I'd rather, <laughs> I mean, he's got how many, just ask him to write it, right? Like he just, he, I'm sure he has infinite ideas about this universe. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm confused with the motivation behind it. I don't understand exactly why, if, you know, if you guys wanted to cover it, I'd talk about it, but do I really want to seek him out? Not, not really. Cause you know, it, based on the work of Alejandro Jodorowsky and, and written by are two very different things. Yeah, I think that's very fair to say. Uh, Liam, how about yourself? I know that we've all spoken about our reservations about this, but the idea that Jodorowsky himself at least seems to not take any umbrage. I mean, I can't imagine that they would publish it if, if Jodorowsky had said, I don't want you to do this. But I wonder what his involvement in any way is in regards to this. I, I mean, it, it just moves his material from the world of creator-controlled comics into general comics, right? So, like, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that, let's say, Robert Kirkman does that, like, no one will ever touch. Like, when Robert Kirkman's like, I'm tired of writing this, then it just goes away and it's over. And then there's other properties that, like, a lot of different, you know, th there are comics that a million different writers have written for. And so I guess in, a like, a larger meta way, this is a way for uh, Yodorowsky's stuff to continue on in a world where he will not continue on, right? But on the other side, I still am a little skeptical. Like, I, like, like, <laughs> as a as a guy who reads a lot of comics, it's like, well, come on, you know, like I love the X Men, and a lot of different people wrote for the X Men, and that's fine. But then it's like, yeah, but that's not really what I read the call for. When I read Meta Bear, you know what I mean? Like, part of that really is just all about him. So I don't know. I. I I'm willing to see what'll happen, but part of my feeling is maybe maybe this isn't going to work out. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could kind of see if another comic book artist wanted to make their own story in the Walking Dead universe or their own story in the Invincible universe that Robert Kirkman might agree to that, right? It's not, not necessarily a continuation of that main story, but sort of a side story that takes place in it. Um, so, I mean, I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that... Well, I mean, technically mm -hmm. he has, right? Because there was the spinoff. There's been a couple of spinoffs from the Invincible universe that other people helmed. So that did happen. But with Walking Dead, for whatever reason... I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure, except for like one-offs with like Negan and stuff, he's controlled everything because it just meant something to him. So, you know, maybe it's just a sign from Yodorowsky of like, I believe that this universe has more stories to tell and I'm willing to let it go so that they do tell those stories. But I don't know, it, maybe he's just like, you know, it's going to happen whether I approve it or not. So maybe I should just do it. <laughs> well, I'm going to try to stay open-minded, but skeptical at the same time. Uh, we did not mention this on our in-call episode, but if you have a spare $100 uh, laying around earlier this year, there was a uh, release by Humanoids of the in-call, a complete 
oversized black and white edition of the comic. Why would you want it in black and white, man? I mean, I guess it, it's a way to appreciate the line work maybe a little bit more. There's a lot of these kind of creator uh, signed off on black and white editions of comics, which have this kind of very large print. Um, I mean, I could see it, especially because Mobius's line work is so detailed, though I I really like the coloring in it as well. <laughs> I wonder how much, uh, how difficult it would be to, uh, um, well, I mean, I, I, I have to say I'm fascinated with the idea. I, I don't know how, if I would appreciate it more or appreciate it just as much. Uh, Julie, it sounds to me like you're, <laughs> you don't necessarily see the appeal of, uh, of looking at this in black and white, though, though maybe it does kind of reinforce the black and white kind of, um, in call, uh, symbology oh, at the core. <laughs> got it. All right. Well, if we're looking at it from that angle, then I'm okay. <laughs> I'm just trying to justify it, right? It doesn't really necessarily make total sense to me. How about you, Liam? Is is this something that you would be interested in having in your collection? I mean, not at a hundred bucks. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, look, I I um I read enough comics that I should have a stronger opinion about this and be like, well, you know, the colors really bring something or, oh, maybe the colors didn't work for this reason. Like, I feel like there are people who are so into comic book art that they can talk about the processes of the coloration sure. and all this stuff. And if there were different colorists working on different issues, they would have all this insight. I don't know any of that shit, man. I, I think it probably looks cool and that might be neat. I personally wouldn't want this huge book of black and white versions of something I already have. That just doesn't I don't quite understand why someone would want that, but for you know, for certain collectors this might be exactly what they want. They really want that much. I mean, you are correct. The line work that Mobius does is like mind-shattering. Like it's just crazy that he puts that much detail in there, but I don't know, man, 100 bucks for a hard copy of something you probably already have an $80 hard copy of? Like, I don't know. I don't know why you would want that, but, you know. Yeah, but maybe you could spend $100 on that and then $10 on a pack of crayons, and then you could color it yourself. Hey, that's kind of fun. <laughs> it's a fair. creative exercise. Can you imagine? Uh, <laughs> you put some photos of that online. I'm sure people would respond very well. <laughs> <laughs> the Mobius mob comes for thee. <laughs> Uh, a brief follow-up to a story we discussed on the last episode about a cryptocurrency collective purchasing a copy of one of Jodorowsky's Dune film Bibles for $3 million. This is an article from The Verge called, They spent $3 million on a Dune script Bible. Now what? Spice Dow's quest to honor a non-existent film. A lot of news came out actually uh, post our episode about this particular collective and what their plans were. A lot that was announced at the time was mocking them, and not uh, for no reason, um, because they seemed at the time to be under the impression this collective that by purchasing the Dune script Bible that they in some way had a right to make a film or other creative works based on Frank Herbert's Dune or particularly the Jodorowsky version uh, of it, uh, which a lot of people quickly <laughs> explained well, to yeah, them that, that uh, was not the case. No. Particularly in the face of the fact that a Dune film was like out at that particular moment while that yeah, was all. Yeah, they were like, oh, we need, to, we need to make Dune, guys. They're like, uh. <laughs> uh this article, uh, which in, in includes an interview with some of the representatives from this collective, um, suggests that that was not what their intention ever was. And instead, that they want to create original work based on the ideas within this mm -mm. Bible, but not directly related to the Dune universe. Um, here's the thing. That sounds ludicrous to me because the ideas in this are still Jodorowsky's. I still don't think you can just use those. But even if you could, you're not Alejandro Jodorowsky. You're a collective of crypto bros with a lot of money on their I mean, hands. If someone wants to buy it for $3 million, that 
It's going to sit in their house and they're going to like worship it. You're like, eh, okay, I understand that. But like, I'm going to take this idea and make money off of it. And you're like, oh, come on, man. Really? So I'm just, eh, that yeah, me. no, I agree. It's, it, to me, it's like, I could see the idea of it being an investment because it's such a rarity because we know there's only a certain number of them on the planet. And like, okay, I don't like it. I don't like the idea that this thing that was created for a purpose is now being repurposed and all this money is going to whoever it was going to as opposed yeah, to the Yeah, but that's creators. the problem. Who is it going to? Who gets that $3 million? Because I, I think it was it's not Jodorowsky. No, it's not Jodorowsky. I think it was whoever was in possession of that. So yeah, you're right. I'm not sure that we even know that. Um, so couldn't Jodorowsky just be like, no, you can't sell that. It's mine. I don't I think so. I don't, right? To me, it's it's once you give some, I, I imagine he, at the time he wasn't thinking about, oh, if I give it to this producer or I give this to this studio, you know, representative that I also need them to sign a uh, piece of paper to say, oh, I need to keep this or return it. I cannot sell it at any point because he probably never thought that that was even a possibility. So it's, uh, you're right. There is a, there's kind of like a lot of weird kind of financial and moral issues kind of tied up in this. But I do have to say, I think in the long run that these uh people involved spice dow that they're going to find that what they paid three million for is not going to be worth that particularly because most of this bible is now available freely online to see anyway uh and its value as a unique item even that might not last if, if other ones uh, show up in the next few years especially that they might now that they are shown to have such value um how about you liam any thoughts about this crypto bro collective I mean, I don't know what they mean as far as making original works based on the ideas in there. That just seems like they're covering their butt because they didn't understand what they bought. But uh, yeah, the idea that if you own the object, therefore you can create using that. I mean, talk to people. I guess there you could make maybe a, a fair use argument, like how much derivation is there, you know what I mean? So like if I make a collage with someone's original artwork, how much am I responsible for that you know what i mean like do i need to pay usage rights and it's really often comes down to how far away you are from it and the sure. rea reality is if they if their culture jamming to the point where what they produce doesn't seem to be that related to the book then how was it worth the three million in the first place they could have just had a brainstorming session and came up with the same you know what i mean like i don't know what it is they invested in that is going to be worth it when they have to alter it to a certain extent to to even like be able to use it you know what i mean like it, what, they, it just what it says in this uh in this article is that they're looking to create an homage to jodorowsky's vision starting with a story about a lonely priest looking for god I mean, it sounds like a Jodorowsky thing. But it, that, that does sound like a Jodorowsky concept. But, but you wouldn't have to buy the Bible for $3 million to come up with that idea. Yeah, right? I don't and understand. I, I, yeah, I think that I think the whole point of this episode so far is we want our Jodorowsky to come from fucking Jodorowsky. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, speaking of things coming from the brain of Jodorowsky, recently posted on Jodorowsky's Instagram page, which is an odd thing for me to even say out loud, uh, was this amazing picture from 1957. I'd like for both of you to take a look at it. Uh, it was captioned Penelope by Leonora Carrington, staged by Alejandro Jodorowsky in 1957. It is this wild photo. Uh, it almost looks Satanistic, you know what I mean, with some of the symbology that's on it and all the horns and things like that. But it is this incredible staging 
of a work, Penelope by Leonora Carrington, for those who don't know who she is, or was, I should say. Uh, she was a British-born Mexican artist, surrealist painter, and novelist, uh, one of the last surviving participants in the surrealist movement of the 1930s, and also a founding member of the women's liberation movement in Mexico in the 1970s. And if that sounds like it's from Wikipedia, that's because it is. But I did want to get both of your thoughts on this amazing image. This is probably one of the earliest photos that we have seen of some of Jodorowsky's work. Uh, what do you think of what you're looking at here? Uh, I'll start with you, Julia. Checks out, man. Checks man. out. You'd be Doesn't like, oh, look- is that Jodorowsky? And I'm like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got crazy costumes. You got some crazy symbols. You got some, you know, eyes looking at me. All sorts of good stuff. Yeah. Buy it. Yeah. Yeah. I'd watch if, that if- production hands down. <laughs> it, it really does look incredible. And and just what a an amazing time capsule of this of this production. I always... You know, we, we've read a little bit about all of the different stage work that Jodorowsky was doing throughout the 1950s, and, and I really couldn't picture in my brain what it would look like. But if I had to conjure what it might look like, this image is exactly what I would think of, I think. Liam, any thoughts on uh, Penelope? I mean, it looks cool. It looks very, like, uh, like uh, folk horror-y, you know? Yeah, like, yeah absolutely. Like, uh, th- this is With the this, sun image and things like yeah, that. Yeah, this is like some extra stuff from the Wicker Man that didn't make it in. It was a little too <laughs> wacky, you know? I don't know. I find myself wondering, like, looking at this, though, like, uh, to what extent does any of this imagery, like, have meaning that people would pick? You know what I mean? Like, if you're watching this staging in, what what year was it again, Doug? 1957? How many people in the audience would watch us and go like, yeah, I'm vibing with what's happening right now? Or are people looking at this being like, I don't know, man. I don't know what the fuck is going on. It feels like a decade the, ahead the, of its time. The, per, the percentage of any if – you, if you like pulled a percentage of people coming out of a Jodorowsky show, a stage show, in any anyone he did – I would say 99% of them would be like, I have no idea what happened. I liked it. It was cool. But like what was happening? Not a clue. I don't think anybody does. I think that's kind of the point of what he does is people don't really understand it, but it's also well, really fucking cool. I, I think I was also, though, specifically thinking about the symbol. Like some of the things that we've talked about is like, you know, a bunch of folks, like naked folks, like throwing paint at each other and blowing up a chicken. <laughs> like I get that that's confusing. But like when he uses symbols and stuff, do those symbols have – meaning for people at the time right like do they have a resonance of like okay well i vaguely know what that is or is it as confusing as it is for me because like other than the idea that like i think that's a goat head you know and i think someone has a cat face on but other than that like and and yeah and like you said doug that looks like the sun up top a lot of this, I'm like, I don't even know what this is from. I don't even know what the reference is. You know what I mean? I mean, and so, and you also have to wonder how much of it is about shaking up the status quo to a certain right, extent. Right, right, I mean, We right, are literally, right. at this point, 1957, what, two years removed from not being able to show Elvis Presley below his torso, exactly. right? Oh, right? Yeah. Yes. But yes. He, he lives, uh, Jodorowsky lives to freak people yeah, out. Yeah, he, right? He, he so much gets off on that. So I think the weirder he goes, you know, the more joy he gets out of that. Can we just say thank you to Instagram for bringing this joyous picture into uh-huh. our lives? Uh-huh. Absolutely. I really do think it's, it's a pretty incredible look at the kind of visual sense that Jodorowsky had at that time. Maybe something we'll be able to explore a little bit more. I would like to use it for a show flyer. Yeah, no kidding, right? I would like to put the names (laughs) of bands on this and then put it all over the place. That's punk rock. I bet he would love that. 
uh, something more concerning uh, recently in the world of Jodorowsky. On April 6th on his Facebook, which is another odd thing to say, uh, Jodorowsky wrote, this is translated, of course, sorry to let you know that for 50 days from now, Wednesday, April 6th, I will not be able to talk to you until April 21st. It's 15 days off uh, of doctor to rest my eyes. I am prohibited to read, writing, watching videos, etc. I will miss you. This doesn't stop life from being beautiful. A hug, Alejandro. And then an update on uh, April 21st. Dear friends, I must still rest my eyes for medical recommendation until the end of this month, April. I will be pleasure to be with you again in May. I will miss you. A hug, Alejandro. Uh, this is before on uh, May 1st, uh, just uh, about a week ago from the time that we're recording this, where he left the message out. Tomorrow I'm back with great pleasure. I will write for you. My three eyes are working now. A hug, Alejandro. Uh, a bit concerning to hear about some eyesight troubles with Alejandro Jodorowsky, but very nice to hear that celebration. I actually, the fact that he signs off with a hug, Alejandro. I thought, I know, that's so cute. It's so, it's it's such a strange thing to now be this many episodes into a Jodorowsky-themed podcast, a person who is a like a punk, right? A, pr a provocateur, a rebel in all of his work. Even just then, we were talking about the idea of kind of shaking up his audience. And then you have him talking about how his three eyes are working and, and how he's sending a hug to the world. Even that first message that he gave out, which is that this doesn't stop life from being beautiful. Is it odd that I feel a an emotional connection and even kind of a cuddliness towards Alejandro Jodorowsky? Or is this a mistake on my part that I should be keeping my arms length so I can judge him properly? Starting with you, Julia. No, everybody likes hugs, man. No matter what, <laughs> it's true. No matter who you are, you can be as hard as you want, but everybody likes a hug. I, I put in our show notes a photo, a semi-recent photo, of Jodorowsky uh, cuddling with his cats. We we know from uh, Jodorowsky's Dune that he is a cat fancier, which might seem a little bit of a surprise when we talk about our first work after our break here today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but how about that photo? What does that make you think, Julia? I think he, you know, I think we, I think we have this idea of him as a like crazed El Topo psycho running around being insane, but you know, he's not like that all the time, right? You, you can be that on in your films, so then you go home and you got to like wash the dishes and stuff. So I, you know, I, I guess now, you know, especially seeing Joe Rousey's doing where you're seeing inside of his apartment and what his sure. life is like, and it's quite modest, right? He's not living in a big fancy mansion or anything, mm -hmm. just has like a lot of nice books. And I go, yeah, he's just a, you know, I think he's probably as people do mellowed out in his old age but i don't think that that's a bad thing because clearly dance of reality and endless poetry are fucking killers so it's not like that's but they're not as harsh either yeah absolutely it, it, it's also what you were just saying is sort of something that we've seen repeated in a lot of articles about jodorowsky where the interviewer sometimes is saying oh i expected this wild crazed person and then he's this like normal looking and and very kind of uh, uh calm and uh, pleasant person to talk to. I mean, it, it's, uh, I, I kind of like that idea that inside this, if you were just looking at this photo of this man cuddling with his cats, a somewhat unassuming older man, and in his brain is just some of the wildest shit that you could ever <laughs> come up with. Uh, Liam, any, uh, any thoughts in regards to uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky's struggles with his eyesight and this, uh, this photo of him cuddling with cats? I just hope he gets better soon, and I hope that we, I mean, I, I, I want him to be eventually the oldest living human you yes. know what i mean like, <laughs> yes, like, please. like that would be his final victory for him to be yes. like i have now board. i have now surpassed every other human that we have a record of i've now lived longer than 
the, what else can I accomplish? You know what I mean? Like, I just think that would be such a final victory for him. It makes me so happy. And if all he's going to do is like read and be cuddled by cats, he might be able to pull it off. This looks like, you know, <laughs> if, if this is what the rest is going to look like, I'm in, you know, like, this is awesome. I sometimes think about people with creativity, which I ho- would hope includes all three of us. I know it includes both of you. I hope it includes all of us. <laughs> that that what we, the gifts that we have to give to the world, we would hope that we'd be able to provide them at a high level for an extended period of time. Not everyone gets that opportunity, but you'd like to think that you'd continue to be creative right up until your, your final moments. And that is one of the most inspiring things about Alejandro Jodorowsky as an artist to me is that he never stops creating, right? He never, mm-hmm. he never tunes out. So he, you still have work, a man in his, you know, well into his 90s at this point, and he still is, is putting work out into the world. I mean, inspiring, I would say. And I, I, I would hope our audience feels the same way. And the fact that that work is still of a very high level, I think, is, is incredibly impressive. Um, before mm-hmm. we go into our first break and then return with our first work, which will be 1978's The Eyes of the Cat, the intro to the recently released trade paperback of The Eyes of the Cat has an uh, intro, well, this is the, it's about a decade old at this point, but a kind of a story by Jodorowsky talking about his relationship with Mobius and how they got together to put this work together. It's a very interesting read. Um, Liam, I don't know if you thought this was amusing, but this is meant to be Eyes of the Cat, the first um, real release collaboration between Mobius and Jodorowsky. But Jodorowsky himself in his intro said that he doesn't consider that because he gave Mobius some ideas for a no- for a graphic novel he had done previously. And so he considers that his, even though he, like, he's not credited, he didn't write anything. He's just like, why don't you do that? And, and Mobius is like, okay. And then he put it into his book. And he's like, that's it. That was our first collaboration. That's out in the world. <laughs> I just like that, you know. That's it. Hey, it's a collaboration. It's a it's two two brains kind of coming together. But I wanted to read just a little bit from this intro because I think it is kind of illuminating in regards to um, in regards to how Eyes of the Cat came about. Uh, so this it, what was happening is that they had already begun working on the Incall together to some extent. I mean, this is post their work on Dune. They had separated. They had come back together. He says, then one evening I accidentally ran into Mobius at a show featuring the singer Barbara. By the greatest of coincidences, we were seated next to each other. I recognized the hand of fate. I told him, failure is really only a bump in the road. We should take all of our creations for Dune and turn them into a series of graphic novels. Mobius answered, I agree, but it seems very difficult to find a story that would have the power and the creativity of Dune. He was right. Unable to hide my disappointment, we parted. That same night, I dreamed that I was flying in intergalactic space, a cosmic being formed (laughs) by two superimposed pyramids. One black, the other white was calling me. I moved toward it and found myself submerged in the center. We exploded, and that's how my subconscious mind introduced me to El Incal. Excited, I called Jean, and we debuted the series in the magazine Metal Hurlant. The first book, The Black Incal, is today considered a classic in the world of graphic storytelling. Le Humanoid Associé, which published the monthly magazine, then organized a great advertising campaign by launching a new limited edition of small volumes that it was called the Mistral Edition. In each book was written, this title is not for sale. It is being given freely to the loyal fans of Le Humanoid Associé. And then Dionette and See, Manubra, all he had to do, all Jodorowsky had to do was put that on the inside of the Jodorowsky Dune Bibles <laughs> and all right. of this would have been avoided. <laughs> not to be resold. That's what he should have stamped on it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so they were putting out this, these kind of free ma- magazine to go to the fans of their work, um, uh, the, the magazine, uh, in this case, the like Humanoid Associate, uh, to create a short story for one of these volumes. And uh, Jodorowsky writes, I want the reader to understand this well. The graphic novel is an industrial art. We, the artists, are artisans. We do our work and are paid per page. This is our modus vivendi. 
Le Humanoid Associé was suggesting here we should work for free without earning author's royalties. It was only for our love of the in-call that we accepted. I suggested to Jean a short story in five pages divided into five scenes about a blind boy. Mobius was fascinated with the story, but he objected, saying it's too short, only five pages. We need to fill 25 pages. I answered, we will be free from the traditional format of each page cut into panels. We will tell the story in a series of beautiful and solitary illustrations, each taking up an entire page. Opposite each of these pages, you will see the boy's shadow as if he were looking through a window. This will be repeated 18 times. In the first of the illustrations, you will simply see an eagle, small at first and beginning its hunt. Then when the eagle returns after a long wait, you will start to animate the child and modify the shadows over him as we shall then see him in reverse angle and now as one of the large illustrations. And thus was born the eyes of the cat. It was distributed for free. Soon, however, they began to sell copies on the black market. Today, they go for the equivalent of 100 euros. Then there was a pirated edition. Those pirates made quite a lot of money while we, Mobius and I, earned immense artistic pleasure from the experience. This is the part I really want to, to focus on. In those years between about 1977 and 1978, Mobius lived in a house about 30 miles outside of Paris. Whenever he finished a page, he would call me on the telephone. Driven by an irresistible curiosity, I would immediately get in my car to go see him. Every time I saw a new page, I swear on the life of my cat Kazan that I experienced a spiritual pleasure exceeding that of an orgasm. <laughs> there before my eyes, I had the undeniable proof that comic book art was great art, just as respectable as the paintings hanging on the walls of museums. In order to see each of these blessed pages, I traveled 30 miles going and 30 miles coming back, 60 miles in all, and I did it 25 times. That means that I dedicated 1,500 miles on the road in honor of the eyes of the cat. I don't regret it one bit. Mobius's art deserves that and much more. I think a beautiful introduction by Jodorowsky to the eyes of the cat. Uh, before we take our first break, any thoughts from either of you on, uh, on Jodorowsky's words here? Obviously, so much respect for Mobius, starting with you, Julia. It's just nice to hear him say nice things about someone he worked with and to really, you know, I think he, I think of him as, as a bit braggadocious. He does like to talk <laughs> about how his stuff, how great his stuff is. And, and I, his great, his stuff is great, right? So like say it because it's fucking true. Um, but I feel like you don't hear about him praising other people too often. I think this is nice because I think he's right. Uh, this, you know, this art is, is stunning. So um, it's nice to hear him say nice things about his friends. This is a very art-focused book as well. Uh, not a lot of words in it, uh, but that doesn't mean that you don't see Jodorowsky all over it as well, which we'll talk about in just a few moments. Liam, any thoughts before we get into our first break? I did like how how happy he seemed to be that this work was pirated and made money for other people for some reason, but that is uh, the unique brain of Jodorowsky. Yeah, I do. Just the idea of his excitement for each page, but yeah. it also confirms for me like... <clears throat> My suspicion is that very rarely did Mobius work quickly, like that Mobius's work is so detailed and intense, you know, that like. But didn't he, he say in the Incal that he worked and on Jodorowsky's Dune when they worked together that he worked super, super quick? Yeah, that was one of the things he really focused on. But I guess that's when it comes to, I think there's maybe a difference between like the storyboards that he was working yeah, on. Yeah, 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 that's true. Seen. I yeah, mean, yeah, the work yeah. here. You, there's only so much it's only so quick that someone could do all the work that we well and that's what i'm saying yeah. like when, when when he said that that he works so quickly on the storyboards i guess that's one of the reasons i found that so amazing because when i look at mobius's comic book stuff uh not just the in call but like i've read other mobius stuff sure it's oftentimes mind-boggling to look like you don't need to do all that but he does and it adds to the intensity of it like there's so many times when other artists I don't want to make it sound like they're cutting corners because what they're doing is rational. They're sure. drawing things that won't take them 
that long to do. And yet the entire exercise of the eyes of the cat seems to have been the opposite of that, of not like, okay, let's just deal with the economy of the story. It's like, let's present a visual, something that is engaging visually in one page, which is like an interesting activity to do. On uh, future episodes of Jodorowsky, we will be covering more of the collaborations between Jodorowsky and Mobius. Frankly, we could have devoted this entire episode to just their collaborations, but one of the things that I think would be was interesting is the idea of seeing how Jodorowsky collaborates with other artists as well and the, the successes and failures within that. Let us take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about The Eyes of the Cat as well as these other two works right after this. <laughs> In a desolate dreamscape world, a man, a bird, and a cat interact in a unique, apocalyptic, yet poetic fashion. It's 1978's The Eyes of the Cat, written, of course, by the wonderful Alejandro Jodorowsky and illustrated by Mobius himself, Jean Giraud. Originally published as a free hardcover in France as Le Yeux de Chat in 1978 and first distributed in the United States and translated into English in 1990's Taboo Number no. 4, The Eyes of the Cat represents the debut collaboration between Mobius and Alejandro Jodorowsky, depending on who you ask. <laughs> Actually, even in Jodorowsky's intro there, he seems to suggest that, um, A, of course, it wasn't their debut collaboration because they collaborated on Dune together, but B, that they had already started working on the Incal when when this was published, and that even that they had put the first part into Metal Herlan. So it's hard to say exactly when their first real collaboration was, but in terms of the one that was released to the public, 1978, pretty early on, this was available to people. It is a very unique work, simply because, as the intro also suggested, this is not a comic that is split into panels. It has um, basically a repeated image on the left-hand side, and the right-hand side is what's telling the story in great kind of full-page detail. Uh, and that story itself is somewhat gruesome. And I also alluded to the idea that maybe it involves a cat being injured in a particularly gruesome way. Um, and considering Jodorowsky's notorious love for cats, I was a little surprised by that. But I guess I shouldn't have been also because I also am aware of Jodorowsky's notorious love for <laughs> animal death. Uh, let us start today, Julia, with your thoughts on 1978's The Eyes of the Cat. I think it's stunning. Yeah. I think uh, Jodorowsky's uh, introduction we just read there that said that he thinks it's worth being in a museum. And I think he's absolutely correct. I think it's some of the most beautiful comic book art I've ever seen in my entire life. Mm -hmm. um, and I love that it turns everything about comics on its head and just, yes. like, nope, there's no color and there's no real story there. I mean, there's a story, but there's no like crazy plot thing yeah, going yeah, on. You know nothing about anybody. You're just coming in in the middle of the story. And it's just about this austere, really beautiful black and white world and i think they are able to tell a it is a detailed story within these panels mm -hmm. but there's so much going on around it that we never learn about so i think it's neat to just have this very small part of a story that leaves you wanting more 
I feel like it's so at odds with the other Jodorowsky comic book work, but also his work as a whole, in the sense that in a lot of the work that we're going to be talking about today, with every frame, there's just so much going on. And it feels like everything is like bowl, like uh, uh, bowling forward with so much plot and so many characters. And this this kind of patient, you know, scene by scene, line by line, seeing it play out almost in slow motion because of how, you know, how kind of widescreen everything is presented in it. I think it's beautiful. And it feels like a real statement. It feels like, you know what? We're giving this opportunity. We're doing this for free, basically. We want to show what we can do as collaborators. Well, here's something that you have never seen before. And I mean, I'm, I don't have enough knowledge about the history of comic books to say just how revolutionary this idea of presenting it this way. I know that, that certainly Comic Book Art um, has a long and, and detailed and diverse history. But but for uh, in the scope of the Jodorowsky work that we know, it really does feel like something special. Liam. What were your thoughts on the eyes of the cat? And I was just thinking how funny it would be for you to say, "Oh, I hated it." <laughs> right after. Oh yeah, it's a real piece, real piece <laughs> of crap. No, it's it's it is definitely beautiful. I mean, I think that I was surprised because, mm, I mean, let's take Tusk out because it's hard to know what what happened with Tusk. Like we right. talked about that, where it's like how much of his, how much of that is him, and how much is studio meddling, whatever, whatever. So taking yeah, yeah. that out. This is the first thing we've seen where it feels to me like while Jodorowsky is collaborating with someone, that person in a lot of ways is given an opportunity to shine far more than he is. You know, Mm -hmm. like not that there is no I mean, I think it's important people know there is a narrative here of a kind. But unlike a lot of his other narratives, it's it's less like I'm going to throw you into something where there's a lot going on and, and you're going to have to figure it out. It's 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 a lot it's a lot less. It's a lot more um, humble in a way. And mm-hmm. and, and the person, not a word that usually we would connect with Jodorowsky. Certainly. No, and and <laughs> the person who gets to shine to really be mind-bendingly amazing is mm-hmm. is Mobius. And 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 that's not to say he's not that in other things, but in Call is the two of them together. And in a way, parts of In Call feel like Mobius keeping up with the insanity that is Yodorowsky, you know, <laughs> in, in, in a good way, not in a not in a bad way, but in a, in a very powerful way. And this is the the first thing we've really looked at where I'm like, wow, uh, Mobius is on display here. And, and that's not to say that Yodorowsky uh, didn't have a lot of input. It's hard to know how much control he had in suggesting things. But even if he is, in many ways, the director of this thing, he's still doing it in a way that allows someone else to be truly amazing. You know, and that's the. I don't know that we've had an opportunity to see that from him until now in in this look through of his career. You know, it's the most Jodorowskyan thing about the eyes of the cat is the fact that the plot itself is sort of a perverse joke. Yes, right. right. The fact that it ends with this idea. And I'm, I mean, it, I don't feel bad giving this away. We're going to be spoiling all this work to a certain extent, but I don't think you can really spoil a work that's so based in its visuals. But it's the idea that this person is, has commanded this bird to take a cat's eyes, and then the the very last frame of it, after these eyes, he's put into his own, the, 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 um, the eye holes in his head, the sockets. And once they've fallen out, he t- commands the bird to go find a child instead. Exactly the sort of dark humor that you would find in the mind of Jodorowsky. And um, then there's but, just like eyeballs all over the floor, right? So this yes, is something yeah. that he, he keeps doing. <laughs> yes. oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it, 
So is he thinking that it might work at some point and he can actually see or is he just fucking around? Or maybe is he just just the high of putting them in the sockets? He just seems to be, you know, that that uh, when Jodorowsky mentioned seeing the art gave him a feeling, you know, greater than an orgasm. Maybe that's what you get out of putting it. Hey, you know what? Maybe I should uh, try that myself at some point. Maybe I just love animals too much. I think, but I think the the reveal of the eagle coming towards yes. you yeah. and this crossover between the window. I know I'm not explaining that very well, but man. Amazing. Like, I very rarely have my mind blown by a comic because I don't read enough comics, right? But like this, I was like, whoa, that's dope. <laughs> I love how self-contained it is. I love how... Now, I have to think that there is another level of meaning to this that I'm not necessarily picking up on. I mean, who who does the... You know, who does what does each part of this necessarily reflect? I think you can make all sorts of different interpretations about, you know, someone stealing the eyes. And, and anyway, whatever my own interpretation is, it's probably very far removed from Jodorowsky. But speaking of interpretation, I wanted to mention something that came up when I was doing a little research for this episode, which is that in early 2020, a group or actually I think an individual attempted to uh, do a Kickstarter for an adaptation of The Eyes of the Cat. And at first, when I heard that, I was like, oh, maybe like an animated adaptation. It seems like it would be uh, quite ripe for an animated adaptation. But no, this is a video game adaptation. The Eyes of the Cat by Mobius and Jodorowsky. See the world through your own eyes. Action adventure. Play a cat, an eagle, and a child. It said the Eyes of the Cat is a 3D gaming experience. You will play uh, turn by turn the cat, the eagle, and the child in Mobius's graphical universe. The game system is based on player one versus player one versus player one. Imagine that you play a chess game in which three players can play, but you are playing alone against yourself. The game system will allow you to see how you play and therefore to understand how you see the world. There's some footage of uh, this attempt to recreate the art of Mobius within this kind of 3D world that I have to say is very impressive, very cool to see. I cannot even imagine how you would interpret this material into a video game. Julie, I, I actually, I don't think we've ever talked about video games or computer games in any way previous. Uh, what do you think about the idea of turning the eyes of the cat into a game? The way he describes it sounds really cool. It certainly you know, does. You're, you're, you have a three-player game, but you're all playing against yourself and, and you know, looking at the art and how each player has a different art style. I think that that's really, really cool. Uh, I've never played a video game like that. I don't know. It seems like one that you would play once through and they'd be like, oh, okay, I've done it and it's done. I don't know how it would be a game like Legend of Zelda where you keep playing again or, you know, something like you would have to. But I guess every game like you play it once it's through, it's done. I don't know what I'm talking it, about. I think okay, I'll stop. I mean, See? No, no, no. You're, you're exactly right. My interpretation of that description, and I could be completely wrong, is the idea that I guess like multiple players play at once, all taking on one of these, uh, like the eagle, the eagle, the child, or the cat, and you, I guess you're battling against one another. So I guess that's the the replay value of it. I don't know. It doesn't seem that doesn't seem to reflect with the story necessarily of the eyes of the cat. <laughs> I'd give it it's, a try. Hey, I'd give it a try. I will say I'm that sorry that it didn't it didn't succeed, and I feel bad for that. So I always feel bad when any any crowdfunding campaign hasn't succeeded. So sorry, some bad timing too. Their goal was not reached on Saturday, March 14th, 2020, which I believe is very close to the oh, time that the world yeah. basically shut down entirely yeah. due to COVID. Yeah, uh, it was March 16th them. because my yeah. birthday is March 18th. And I was like, oh, yay. <laughs> Happy birthday. It might that be a victim of some sad. bad timing in this case. But I'd like to see that. I mean, the, the, the work that's here is fascinating. I would recommend listeners, by the way, go to this Kickstarter, if only because 
Uh, there's a video of an interview with Jodorowsky on the page because the creator of this work, this uh, con this um, video game, went and visited him. And apparently there's a much larger version that was likely to get released if this did get funded. Uh, maybe someone I'll reach out to. See, uh, I'm not even sure if necessarily English is their first language, but we can see if maybe they want to talk to us a little bit about The Eyes of the Cat. Liam, your thoughts on a video game version of The Eyes of the Cat? I think if I was more... <clears throat> interested in video games as a artistic endeavor like sure it's something to keep in mind that i think like i i don't know if any of us uh on this uh podcast are connected to but there's a way of thinking about video games where the way that you play the game the way that you interact with the game the way that the uh, i don't even know what the terminology but the the way the game functions as a game is considered like not just an art, but a science. Like it's a place sure. where people mm -hmm. really see psychology and philosophy and aesthetics all combining with each other. And I don't care about any of it. Like, <laughs> and, 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 and not, not in a way where I think it's, there are things I don't care about where I think I don't care about this because it's stupid. No, I think video games as a art form are probably fascinating, but because I don't feel inclined to participate in them it's i don't dive into it you know what i mean i i'm not inclined to read a bunch of theory about something that i have no interest in participating in um and so part of me is like i bet you there's a whole theory around this that's really interesting but i also bet that playing the game i would just get really annoyed because that's how <laughs> that's what how i respond to most video games is frustration and, and disinterest so uh, i'm kind of torn on it in theory it seems cool i would probably never play it because i just don't play any video games Right. No, I mean, I, I think that's fair enough. I, I do think it reminds me a little bit of that that fan trailer for the In Call, the animated version, sure. where you see that, you know, a lot of the interest for me is just seeing this work translated into a different form. And look, to me, even if it was just this demo where you're walking through the city and, and the Mobius art has been basically transformed into a 3D way that you could travel through, I think there's something kind of fun and interesting about that as well. Maybe it's just because just the, the idea of being able to stare at that art for extended periods and really take it in seems like it could be really enjoyable. The game part maybe is kind of secondary for for me. Um, Jodorowsky mentioned that in regards to this comic that he desired to be free from the traditional format of each page cut into panels. As we've already mentioned, this, this is not like a traditional formatted comic. It is kind of single full uh, page images that make up this kind of very short work. Uh, does this kind of method of comic design work for you, starting with you, Liam? Uh, and does it work for the story that's being told? I think it does. I'm, I'm, I'm unsure. I guess the question is, in comic art, does the art serve the story or does the story serve the art? And sure. is that even a rational question? I think for some people, you can't separate the two. They are, they are the same thing. You know what I mean? Uh, in this case... I think someone who was more wedded to more traditional forms of narrative uh, art making, let's call it, graphic sure. storytelling, mm -hmm. whatever, however you want to imagine it, someone might be turned off by this. They might feel like, well, the art is the art and the story is just an excuse for the art. You know, I, you know I, just to interrupt you for a second, what I think sometimes, and this is something maybe my thought process as a child, where uh -huh. if I picked up a book, like a graphic novel, and I'm like, what do you mean? I just read this 60-page thing in like five minutes because I'm just – I'm not paying attention to the art. I'm just reading the story, sure. right? And it's like, what's my value here? And for something like this where it's just like, oh, it's like – it's a very short story that you're getting. But the appreciation is – I think that answers that that question at least in this context, right? Like what is more important? In this case, I think the art is the focus to a great extent. So I think for some people then it, it might – they might argue that in doing that, you might create something very beautiful, but it, you're deconstructing the – 
art form itself in a way that isn't helpful. You know, the same way that like, uh, you know, there there are films where someone just filmed the sky for 48 hours sure. and then cut that into a thing that you can watch. And for some people, that defeats the whole point of making a movie in the first place. And for other people, it excels the, you know what I mean? So I think there are principled viewpoints that might find the assertion that this is accomplishing something uh groundbreaking or or important within graphic storytelling they might be bummed on that they might actually find that wrong uh, i don't personally feel that way because i really love the way that this told the story if this was an issue of alpha flight what i think of uh, you're wasting my time here man maybe it might, it might it might be that that the reason it appeals to me is because of the kind of story it is and because i'm not invested in in that form of storytelling per se um but for me like I think, yeah, it definitely works. And I'm okay with the idea that maybe the, the art is taking primacy over the story. That's okay. I think that's great. That's fine. And it's it, it it's, its own sort of work. Um, I don't know that, how many people saw this and thought, well, this is the only way I want to tell these stories from now on. Um, but I do hope that it was influential on people as far as the style of art that they were creating. You know, I wonder if the reason that they could get away with releasing a story like this is because it was being given away. You know, where they didn't have to feel, you know, the idea that the pressure of, oh, are people going to feel like they're not getting enough out of this? Well, you don't have to worry about it because they're not paying for it, right? You can you can be a little bit more experimental. And I wonder if that was a process that went into it. I don't know if they would necessarily be able to print something in like heavy metal, right, in the magazine where it's just these full pages back to back to back. And it wouldn't even really necessarily work anyway because you'd have ads in between it, that sort of thing. Um, so, so it's kind of uh, silly then, right? Because you have the freedom uh, that he is that they have to make this is because it's free. Yes, right. That's, yes, absolutely. That's why. But doesn't that speak to something larger as well, right? Where without the the financial component, because even the not even getting paid for it, right? That there is such a kind of a love for the game aspect, which again, I don't want to. Uh, discount the the financial motive that people put into a lot of their art. We know that it's a necessary part of, of living in the world, but there's something kind of beautiful in the experimentation that comes from the freedom of not having to serve anybody except for your own interests. Sorry, mm -hmm. I, 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 I'm sorry, Julie, I, I, maybe I, I stepped on <laughs> your, your thought in regards to that, but do you have any uh, feeling about the idea of telling a story, a comic story without using kind of individual panels? Yeah, I think, you know, Joe Rasky to me is at the, at the end of the day, fucking punk rock, right? Because yeah. he doesn't, he doesn't care about any of your rules. It doesn't care. Just gonna, okay, well, you can, you can do it that way, but I'm going to do it this way. And I love that. that it, that's why he's so uh, meaningful to me is because he has his such a powerful voice that he's not afraid to use. And so for me, this feels like him and Namobi sitting down and like, okay, what are comic books? Not right? They are yeah. <laughs> not singular and they are not, you know, beautiful and cold and just one image and there's not a bunch of stuff going on and there's no, there's no color and there's no anything and kind of taking everything that comics are and, and breaking it down and doing something completely different, right? Which is, which is what I would expect him to do. He has this brain that works that way, which is this genius brain that goes, okay, nobody's done it like this. Let's try that. And you go, wow, how'd you do that, man? Yeah. And also a work that, that really does 
confront the audience to a certain extent. I mean, there is, as we've already mentioned, some grotesquerie in this as well. Um, this uh, this trade paperback version of The Eyes of the Cat has been released in a, vari- a variety of versions, uh, one in complete black and white, and also a yellow version that was released a few years back. That's the version I think that we all saw. Uh, just going over to you quickly, Liam, any thought in regards to a preference? I, I believe that the yellow is supposed to reflect what the original... Uh, printing back in 1978 was supposed to look like to a certain extent. Does it matter to you whether it's in black and white or uh, black and yellow? I like the yellow that we saw. I don't. I don't know if it would make a huge difference, but I think if I had a preference, it'd probably be for the yellow. How about yourself, Julia? No, I'll take it anyway and get it. <laughs> yeah, I don't if think I could it, find it, a physical copy of this, that would be all that mattered in the world. Right, like you yeah. know what I mean? Like I would just be stoked to own this as opposed to seeing it digitally. Like yeah. I, I picture like you're on, you go and you're in Paris and you find this little tiny bookshop that's like down an alley and it's just sitting there waiting for you and you're like, <laughs> and it's like two euros and you're like, oh my god. <laughs> I mean, that's the dream, isn't it? I that's the dream. That it. was my dream. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, Eddie, uh, there isn't a lot really to talk about plot-wise in regards to the Eyes of the Cat, and I was going to ask you about the art individually, but I think we've all raved about it at this point. Mobius is kind of untouchable in regards to this. Mm-hmm. The the streets, the the uh, the locations on display, even the animals being shown here. Hey, even the grotesquerie of the eyeball being plucked out in this case, there's nobody who does this work quite like Mobius. Any final thoughts, Julia, on 1978's The Eyes of the cat it's one of the coolest comics i've ever read i think it's gorgeous and i think that it's so short that there's no reason you shouldn't read it yeah yeah that's right this is one it wouldn't necessarily be a great introduction introduction to comic uh comics as a medium but in terms of an introduction to comics art it might be untouchable it's just a beautifully told piece how about yourself liam any final thoughts uh basically the same thing i mean i i can understand why it wouldn't be everyone's cup of tea because there are people who i suspect read comics for certain kinds of narrative storytelling and that's the appeal and the art is just sort of the medium for that but uh but i feel like even those people would be like okay this isn't float my boat but it's stunning right there's no way that anybody could read this and be like oh it's gross it doesn't look good (laughs) it looks it looks amazing right even if you're like an x-men person but you still i think you can look at it and say this is incredibly done I I am inclined to agree. However, I have seen some of the art that's going right now is super good and it's super bad. So then it makes me wonder if maybe there is no aesthetic value and that everything I assume is good. Someone might come through and be like, actually, it's bad for this weird reason I don't understand. So I, I'm inclined to say, yes, everyone should check it out. But I don't know. Maybe maybe uh, maybe uh, I'm wrong. There's someone out there who's like anything that's not digitally rendered is bad anyway. <laughs> I don't know. Well, speaking of what is good and bad comic book art, let's move on to something very different. <laughs> uh, and that is savage. <laughs> and that, <laughs> I'm just setting setting up our listeners just in case. Uh, this is 1985's The Jealous God. Uh, in a strange world, different groups with a variety of personal and political motives search for an ancient, powerful relic called the Androgerous. Uh, authored, of course, written by Alejandro Jodorowsky, illustrated by Silvio Cadello. Uh, Silvio Cadello was actually influenced greatly by Mobius. He was formerly a industrial designer, advertising professional, and actor before moving into comics work. Uh, this... This is a little difficult to explain in a lot of different ways, and uh, part of this was my own fault. So The Jealous God was printed in heavy metal, probably metal her line before that, but in heavy metal in late 1985, over three issues, I believe. And then 
Jodorowsky and uh, Silvio Cadello did a sequel to it called The Carnivorous Angel, uh, a.k.a. L'Ange Carnivore, published in 1986. But here's the thing. <laughs> because the first part, uh, The Jealous God that we're just about to talk about, was published in heavy metal, it was available in English. But to my knowledge and from what I've been able to find out, The Carnivorous Angel was never published in English. So basically... Even though it says the end at the end of this story that we are just about to talk about, it, anyone who has read it before, which from what I've seen is not a lot of people, they will tell you that this does not feel like a complete story. My understanding is that the rest of the story is told in a sequel that's never been translated to English, so we don't know how it ends. The fact that we calling don't have all a... of our French speaking friends <laughs> yeah. come to our rescue. Help isn't us. that isn't that a fascinating thing though? And that's this is the only example of Jodorowsky's work that has not been translated into English. I mean, there's still so much out there, and I'm, one of my hopes is as we do this podcast, there will be more of these things that will arise and become visible, and that we can kind of experience for the first time with other people, at least in this form in English. Uh, yeah, if so, you guys, if you guys know our listeners, if you know where we can read this in English, please. Yes. 100%. Uh, so that was my mistake because I didn't realize that going into it. I just saw this as a, on a list of notable uh, work. But I do have to say, I suspect that even if we had the second half of the story, <laughs> that our understanding of it might still be somewhat limited because this might be the most dense and difficult to parse Jodorowsky work that I have yet encountered. Uh, it was, uh, I wouldn't say it was frustrating necessarily. It maybe was because I was coming off the kind of slow motion storytelling of the eyes of the cat, but this one really took me by surprise. And that was also included with the artwork, which, uh, is very, very different than the Mobius work that we've kind of encountered so far. I mean, even if it was someone inspired by Mobius. So let me get both of your takes. I'm going to start with you, Liam O'Donnell. What did you think of 1985's The Jealous God? Oh man. Well, I think you're right. It it is it is a kind of storytelling where you are immediately thrown into the deep end with a variety <laughs> of terms. There's there's a lot let's call it jargon, right? There's a lot of jargon involved that you hope over time will reveal itself. There's also a variety of characters who yeah, have I, you know, actually, I'm just going to interrupt interrupt you because I think jargon is sort of a loaded word. I think like terminology. You know, you know, it's to me, it felt a lot like, and this might be a strange comparison, but it seems to make sense, to Dune, right? Where you start out with all of these yeah. different terms. I was thinking it, the same thing. <laughs> and contextually, it will make sense eventually, or at least you hope it will, right? Because, like, But like I you feel said, like in Dune, you would call it jargon. I'm like fucking yeah, I don't know why that's a loaded, nonsense. Like, yeah, what? I don't know yeah. why that's a loaded word. I think jargon's yeah. the actual okay. word. Okay, I, I, jargon has a negative connotation to me, but I guess you're right. It, it, I mean, totally I think it sense. does have a negative connotation for people unwilling to learn jargon. Right. You know, but like I, there's I, a I whole group I, of people who are like, just say it plain. And it's like, there's a whole bunch of things you can't say plain. And for me, I think starting a story with a bunch of terms that no one knows is not a bad thing. It's sure. it's setting up like we're going into an alien world where there's a lot of complicated ideas going on. And to be fair, so what I was saying is there's the, the there's a lot of words that are not explained sure. that you hope will become clear over time. There's a bunch of characters that all have different allegiances to each other and we're it's not obvious at first what people's various conflicts and alliances are and um and we're we're kind of in the middle of of a bunch of things enveloping where there is uh, a, a source of power. There are different people fighting over that for various reasons, and there's a narrative about a uh, a uh, 
a princeling who uh, becomes sick and then has becomes a, a, an exile. Um, all that is to say that all of that feels very Jodorowsky, especially uh, if the princeling thing makes people think about other sort of narratives. Like I was thinking like, oh, is this guy going to go like a Buddha direction? You know sure. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, it, there are resonances there of things that feel maybe not familiar because a lot of it is so alien. Um, but the issue for me, and, and we've sort of hinted at this the whole time, but I'll just say it right out is was that the art is also confusing for me uh and not very engaging for for my and obviously a lot of this is taste but the the combination of it not being always clear and then also for me being a bit of a turnoff I found myself like not feeling like I was sure what was going on and not always caring. Like I I just wasn't really engaged with what was happening. And so I was trying to decode it for the purposes of discussing it on the podcast. But unlike other things that we've like watched in far as films or maybe parts of the in call are a little bit uh, difficult at first, all those things had a certain amount of like joy to them for me. Like, all right, I'm, you know, I'm diving in here and figuring it out. And this was just frustrating top to bottom. And at first it's easy to blame that on the storytelling because, like I said, there is a lot of terms that aren't explained at first. But I think that's happened in other things we've read uh, that Jodorowsky has done. Uh, there are parts of the ink call that at first it's not clear exactly what things are. But over time, they become clear. This felt like a combination of art that I didn't like and I felt uh, alienated by with this feeling like a story fragment. It feels like with more space and more time through the method of us being engaged with these characters, we would slowly get to understand what was happening in in a more direct way. But um, we don't get that. And and I'm not convinced that that happens with a second issue. I, I wonder if this was maybe part of something that uh, the creators thought they would have more space and time to develop. Uh, mm. And I think over a, se- over a series of stories, it could really become clear. But with what we have here, it feels like a frustrating fragment of something that is sort of underdeveloped. And, and I found myself like, you know, not really sort of into it, even though there were parts of it that I kind of was like, okay, I get this story about the, the prince who's cast out and he's among the lepers. And then there's this other group of uh, sick people who've banded together, who refuse to be victims. Like there's a lot of themes there that could be interesting that like, just felt like we never really got to get into them. It, it's a very episodic uh, way of storytelling. I have a question just quickly for you, Liam. Do you think that if this story started with Alandor and Orgfur, so that's the Alandor is the uh, prince who gets yeah. kind of cast out. If it started with that piece, which is a little bit more coherent and easy to follow, that and then you also have a, a main character, let's say, one that you can kind of follow throughout the narrative, do you think it would have been a little bit easier for you? Because, and for me as well, uh, I mean, well, I, I guess I'm asking myself, I think it would have been easier because one of the things that I felt for the first maybe 20 pages of this is that I'm just kind of grasping around about, wait, who am I following? Who Who is important? Who, you know, how am I supposed to care about the interactions? And it wasn't until I got to that part of the story where I was like, oh, these are some tropes that I recognize and that I can kind of grasp onto. Do you think it would have been make it a little bit easier reading? I don't know. It's hard to say because I can't tell if the fact that the seven knights are very difficult to parse out who they are and they don't seem to have strong. I mean, they have some color differences, but they don't yeah. seem to have strong individual traits necessarily that are sure. easy to pick out. I can't tell if that's intentional or not. 
Like that might be an intentional decision. Like, no, we want them to all seem similar. And over and five time, of them are killed off like pretty quickly, right? As well. And it might, but it might be a storytelling tactic that over time, the two that survive develop personalities that we can identify with. Like I could see that being methodologically helpful, but in the context of what we have, it's just frustrating, right? Like, okay, there's these seven knights. What are, who are they? What do they do? They're not even for me, at least again, this is an opinion. I don't think they're even interesting to look at. I I guess the problem is that the art for me is both confusing and I don't like it. You know what I mean? And so, <laughs> so, so, so the eyes say no. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, Bit of a it's, double whammy there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there could be a very plain style of art that I also don't like, but this is confusing, but then also a bit of a turnoff. And, and some of that is the part where I, I have trouble distinguishing which characters are which characters, right. which makes it hard then to know what is going on and why I should care. But like, I, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not convinced that we need a main character necessarily because my experience of reading things in heavy metal, which again, I'm not an expert, but I have a bunch of issues of that I've inherited from people is sure. like, Sometimes you read something and it's like, I don't know what's going on here, but it looks cool and there's stuff going on. And I right, feel like right. if I could read more of this, it would it would come together. And I think that's a method of telling stories in that magazine. Again, I could be wrong, but I, I think that happens a lot where it's like, we're just going to throw you in and you don't need all the details. You just need a compelling thing to latch on to that's going to move you forward in this narrative. And it doesn't matter that you don't know who the Knights of Ohm are or what the blah, 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 blah is or what the MacGuffin is going to be like. That doesn't really matter. There's enough here for you to latch onto that you'll come on this ride regardless. I will say that what works the best for me in here, it ties into one of the things that's, that's one of your, I wouldn't say complaints, but but certainly things that you were concerned about, which is that there's immense world building here. This right. feels like a world that you could tell hundreds of stories in because there's already so much groundwork laid in the same way like it feels like a world as detailed as the Incal, except without a long-term necessarily story to be told within it that we're all supposed to kind of that 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 brings in all of these elements kind of one at a time it just kind of throws you into the midst of it and i think some people would find that very exciting i mentioned dune already this does feel a little bit more dune like than than even the incal right i mean <laughs> and, and sure mm-hmm. yeah it, it just you know like the warring factions and all the different kind of people trying to undermine each other but i think that one of the difficulties in terms of the art for me is that that no one is human in this. And I know that's a weird thing to complain about. It's not unique to this, but like everyone is so stylized and everyone, it looks so different that I just, I had trouble kind of keeping my eye on who the characters are supposed to be. And anyway, we'll get into the artwork in just a minute. I got to get to you, Julia. Liam just went on a rant about how much he hates <laughs> the jealous God. He's, he's ready he to quit the podcast. He, he never said hate. He never said hate. <laughs> That's a strong word. <laughs> I'm I'm interpreting his word, just like he interpreted the words of Jodorowsky in this. Uh, Julia, what are your thoughts on 1985's The Jealous God? I agree with Liam. I think uh, I found it very confusing, uh, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I, I, I probably the most confusing comic I've read. And it, it was frustrating in a way because I'm trying really hard to pay attention, right? Yeah, doing right. Podcasts on it, And I want to be able to explain it, but then I'm like, I just don't really know what's happening. 
I don't, you know, and I think it, it, it's an interesting contrast. You have the punk rockness of Eyes of the Cat, which is where, you know, you we, you strip away and it's just this kind of austere thing. But I think he's trying to do that, I think, in a different way with this, where there's just, okay, well, we're not going to go with any kind of traditional storytelling and we're not going to really tell you who anybody is and you're just going to have to get in the middle of it. It reminded me a little bit, though, of, uh, and you probably didn't expect me to bring this guy up, but uh, <laughs> it reminds me of Brett Easton Ellis. I don't know if you Ooh. guys have read any of his stuff. Um, but I'm a big fan. And one of his books is called The Informers. And The Informers is the first time I read it, it was so confused because every chapter is different and just a different person in a different it, they're not connected. I mean, like there's connecting bits, but not sure. really. It's just different. Like, and you and it's like this where you're just dropped in in the middle of a story. You get one chapter of that story, and then you never see it again. And I go, okay. And like the more times I read that book, the more I like it. But I think that that kind of opened my eyes to a new way of storytelling. Where you go, okay, we're just going to drop you in. You just get this chunk. There's not a beginning, middle, and end. It's just where you are in the story, right? And right, right, right. they always say like the, you know the happy ending is just where you stop the story, right? <laughs> yeah, so it, right. you can you can stop at any started anywhere you like so i think sometimes dropping people into the middle of something can work and even sometimes like i think you think about dune when you think about jargon i think about clockwork orange which sure. is that and train spotting are probably the two hardest reads i've done and that's something sure. where you mm -hmm. it takes you so long to be like what does this word mean i don't understand what's happening we're living in this world you know this whole other thing but then by the time you get halfway through you're like oh okay i got it it's fine but it just takes you like they're really challenging you as a reader to keep going to understand what's happening but i yeah. feel like this is challenging the reader but we never get the payoff of knowing what's happening it's like at the end it's like i still kind of don't really know what that was about you know I think I think that we're challenging. You're right. That that's the key here. It it is a work that I think is intentionally challenging the reader in terms of the concepts on display. But I feel like, and I think this is something that Liam was alluding to pretty explicitly, which is that there's an extra layer of challenge with the art that wasn't necessarily as intentional that adds a level for me of frustration to it. So I want to stick with you, yeah. Julia. About this art, Silvio Cadello, very accomplished artist. Uh, I've looked up some of his work, very different looking than what we see here. What did you think of the art in The Jealous God? May I say no? <laughs> I say no. I just, I, I don't, I, uh, it's well done. You know, it's clearly done with talent, but it's just not an art style that I enjoy. So to... You know, and, and I've and I've read enough comic books to know that there there are ones that are very dense as far you know, I think okay, I think about the incal, right? And you go, okay, the incal every frame in the incal has tons, everything's going on all the time in that, right? There's mm -hmm. always stuff in every frame of just insanity. But it's still clear. I still don't feel confused, even though I'm you know, if I'm going into the story, I'm not sure what's going on yet, but it's still coming along fine. But here I feel like it's the same, but there's a billion things going on all at once and I'm like, I can't tell what's happening there's just something about his art that's just not doesn't make cluttered scenes clear it just makes them confusing and i don't know enough about art to know why his work feels like this but mobius doesn't and i, I you know is mobius a better artist i can't say i don't know enough about it but i would say that mobius makes art that is clearer than this i think i think that is i think what you're getting at there is is something i hadn't really thought about which is that if you were going to tell a story like this which is going to leave the reader somewhat rudderless for 
at least a large portion of it, as you are trying to get attuned to what this world is and who these characters are and what their relationships are, then the clarity of the storytelling and the art is kind of essential. And there's there's so little clarity here. I said before we started recording to Liam, and I don't know if this is unfair or not, that there are times when reading this comic that I couldn't tell where the characters ended and the backgrounds began. It just, I couldn't, like, my eyes weren't able to focus clearly on who the characters were. They just didn't distinguish themselves enough for me. Maybe that was a purposeful choice, but for me it leads to frustration when I'm already kind of thinking about taking out a notebook and writing down character and uh, relationships just so I'll be able to to follow the story. And there's an I think for the three of us, it's also an extra level of sort of pressure knowing that we'll have to discuss it afterwards with some sort of coherency. I don't know. And I read this, I, the whole thing twice, and I stared at it for a very long time. And I have to say, I'm not sure outside of individual things that happen within the story, if I could give you a summary of all of the events and have it make sense or to be accurate to what's actually in it. Liam, I know that you have feelings about the art. You've already talked about it. Any other feelings on Silvio Cadello's art in The Jealous God? If you Google image search his name, right, yep. you'll find a bunch of art from the Carnivorous Angel as well as some unused art from The Jealous God. Mm -hmm. And uh, from what I can tell, a bunch of the art from The Carnivorous Angel makes sense. I don't know what's happening because there's no words. It's yeah. it's part of his art book, and it's it's all just the art and not the dialogue. But uh, but you look at it and you're like, oh, I know what's happening in this picture. And in fact, I even recognize two of the characters from the first book. But in this book, and again, man, I don't know. Me, I guess it could be possible that the color separation on these scans is bad, and that's that's partly what why it's so confusing. But sure. based upon what I was seeing. What I was seeing was a style that was intentional, but what it was in trying to do didn't make any sense to me. I don't know why this decision was being made. I, it wasn't like he can't draw. Obviously, he can. And if you look at some of his other artwork, he's done some very representational artwork that is beautiful, you know? And and I don't know that I need... I mean, you know, I've, I've read early Sandman comics. I've read some other, like, indie comics that are confusing. Um... It's just not clear to me what is accomplished in this art being uh, both, for my eye, aesthetically kind of not great. Like, I just think it's ugly. Uh, and then also confusing. It's not clear to me that the characters are delineated in a way where I can always figure out who they are. There's a couple who stand out. You know, the prince stands out. His The, the kid who's with him stands out. Do you but care about any of them, though? No, no. But <laughs> but part of me, I really, I really think that that is. I I do want to say I really think that is because this feels like a story fragment. Like even the suggestion, like well, maybe what happens in the Carnivorous Angel wraps up the story. There's not enough here to wrap it up. I I don't think enough happens in what we read for me to feel like there's a story that I need to be concluded. It's like I I feel like I've watched three episodes of a of a television show that's 20 seasons long you know what i mean like like that that, that that in order for any of this to be compelling there has to be a lot more and i haven't gotten enough of it over time and also, and also liam let's not forget what this was published in heavy metal as a complete yes, story yeah with no suggestion that there would ever be more of it and there wasn't <laughs> audiences must have been particularly confused and in fact let's make something very clear this is not available as a trade paperback in English. So what we are what we read for this was just the collected pages from Heavy Metal, right? So it it maybe and I think that that's a really 
interesting point you made, which is that. So what I have in front of me right now, there's a um, uh, a lot of libraries have this in Canada. I think it's in the states as well. There's a, a thing called Hoopla, where you can basically borrow eBooks from libraries, and I have the French version of the Carnivorous Angel in front of me right now. And when I look at the art on this, which was actually published in in uh, French, it's all French. Um, it seems a lot clearer. It absolutely does. And what I'm thinking is maybe outside of the context of this heavy metal um, uh, publish and that if it had had the opportunity to be put into a trade paperback and maybe recolored, that maybe it would be a little bit easier to follow and that would make a big difference in our interpretation of this. You're putting a lot of weight on color. Well, I'm putting a lot of weight on color, but I'm saying, like, it's the same artist a year later. I'm looking at his work right now. Yeah, but, okay, but we talked about, or we talked about the InCal, right? You talk about how you have a black-white version of the InCal, and we all went, eh, the color really does a lot there. But it would be interesting because you would love to see Mobius's art, right? Like, it's really, but, like, you'd say, okay, take this, take the color away. I don't think it's going to get any more... Right, like it's still. Oh, I don't mean sorry. I I don't mean decolor. I mean recolor, right? I mean no. I understand that, but I'm saying comparing it to if you took the color away from the incal, you took the color away from this. Sure. I feel like it wouldn't. Oh, I see. It would be even more. It would be even more confusing. Yeah, maybe so. You know, maybe so. So I feel like it's the art itself that's the issue. I don't think it's the color, although the the color. You know, again, not a comic book uh, expert. I'm sure, but I. I don't know. The, and the story itself, you go, okay, you have the, the seven knights slash monks that are on the quest to do something. They're atheists. They hate that the religion is is big, right? So they're going to go to this <laughs> thing. I have to say my favorite thing about this, I think, is the uh, like the, the soothsayer worm whose drool uh, yeah. puts, like, is, is the thing that tells the future. I was like, I'm kind of into that. It just like lives in this big cave. I'm like, eh. I kind of like that. Like, I kind of would like to see more about that. That there, you know, everything that happens in this, it's just I, I, you know, to to challenge your reader and not give them the payoff that they've gone through to get to this point. I feel, uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. It's it's a little tough to swallow. I I, I want to say so. It, there's a one moment in the Jealous God where uh, the the prince character is at Allendor. Uh, is fighting the leader of the of the uh, rebels who yes, grow hands or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's one of the few places in the comic that's very clear what's going right. on. One person fighting another. <laughs> and and the art I'm seeing from the carnivorous angel all looks like that. It, hmm. it and granted that might be cherry picked because at least for me I'm just looking at grabs on Google so maybe people only pick the parts that were very clear and there's other parts (laughs) that are a big mess but a lot of the Jealous God is these messier panels where it's really hard to discern like what exactly is even fucking happening and what I'm looking at but Joe Dorowski had to have signed off on the art right like he's doing this in collaboration with so we, we assume that he liked this art it was like yeah i saw this guy's art i was like yeah and i want it to look like this because clearly if he wanted to think change he could have had a change so this is yeah his vision as well which um go, uh, okay though i mean maybe it, it, the fact that they that jodorowsky and silvio cadello did not do i think any more collaborations i might be wrong on that after uh the carnivorous angel maybe that's that speaks to that to some extent 
Well, I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> I guess it's something we can find out as we go a little forward with the comic book art. Seems like we're all pretty much in agreement. I've heard this. There are interesting things in here. We haven't really talked about the thematic elements of it, but mostly that's because I feel like I don't have a strong grasp of them. There's obviously a lot of um, satire of religion and religious figures in this, but without the kind of conclusion of the story, it feels a little bit like some of the, the a retread of some of the elements in the Incall that we've already talked about. Uh, I do want to ask both of you though. If I'm able to get the second half of this story in English, having read the first half, starting with you, Julia, how much interest do you have in reading The Carnivorous Angel? If I wasn't doing it for an episode of Jodorowsky, I probably wouldn't read it. I think that's very fair, especially considering our feelings. I think my own motivations and pressure to read it outside of this podcast would be, well, I at least want to know how this all ends up right i like to feel like otherwise did is it just kind of a waste of time i've basically no, got but the i mean first if you read if, if, if we're just talking about like a normal novel if i read a novel and i didn't really like it then you sure. go do you want to read the sequel and i go not really or the same for a movie right if if, if, if the original is not really that interesting to you then i can almost guarantee you the sequel is going to be a lesser version of that right sequels almost never surpass the original sure. so you go mm -hmm. okay it's probably gonna be this but a little less good and they go, eh, I, Julia, so. I have a question for you you're obviously yeah. a big movie fan and you and you are a, a creative force in making films how often do you give up on a movie after you've started it um almost never yeah me either and I feel like that's a, um, yeah. That's I did. I did. I did start like, a rule with books, though, where a mm -hmm. uh, hundred pages. Oh, I give a book a hundred pages, and if I don't like it, I don't have to read anything after that. Because I started. I tried to slog through Anne Rand, which was a nonsense. <laughs> I'm sorry, but those books not good. And I was like, after five hundred fucking pages, I was like, <laughs> these are not the like, two people you have to apologize to in regard to that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right. No Anne Rand fans here on Jodowski. I understand. Uh, so, th so after that, I was like, okay, a hundred pages. Although I have to say, I am slogging through Dune, which does feel like a slog, but I am determined to fucking finish it. I have like a hundred pages left. I've been reading forever and i'm a very fast reader and for some reason this book is taking me forever so are you going to be moving on to the sequels after that no see that's the thing right <laughs> i feel like okay i've read dune i can say i've read it i can say the quote now without any sort of irony i'm not a poser anymore but i don't really read anymore no i don't <laughs> liam how often do you uh, give up on movies after starting them I never do intentionally, but as you know, as because a parent, I'm a parent, yeah, yeah. I sometimes have to pause something and come back to it. Of course. And there have been movies that I, when given the option, decided not to return to. Sure. Uh, although, you know, never permanently. I never think, like, I'm never coming back to this. But I have been like, oh, I'm not ready for that. Let me put something else on and then see. And so there's a few things that if I was, like, really searching my memory, I could probably come up with a list of maybe like five or so in the last couple of years that I just never went back to. But it, it, again, it, it's never a decision I've made. I think a movie has to be really bad for me to be like, yo, fuck this. Um, <laughs> and I don't remember. I'm sure I'm, I'm not saying it never happened, but I can't remember the last time where I just straight up was like, nah, I'm good. And just didn't finish something, you know? Liam, if All I was the worst movies I've watched, Doug, are for Eric Roberts is the fucking man. So. <laughs> oh. Look, we know the reality of the situation that we put ourselves in with that podcast. Um, Liam, no, but it's interesting, I... right? To, to have to force yourself to watch a movie that you may have turned off, but now you have to watch it because you yeah. don't talk about yes. it on a podcast, right? Not only watch, but really pay attention and take notes in the whole bit. Like, we're lucky we're on a Jodorowsky podcast where we know everything's going to be of a certain quality, Tusk aside. But, you know, this is like we know where we are. 
So we never have to worry about delving into terrible films or terrible anything like this. You know, I don't the Jealous God's not my cup of tea, but it doesn't mean it's not great. Yeah. And I'm sure there's somebody out there who this is their fucking jam, right? Like they're into it. And you go, okay, that's I have great, to say, man. I have to say, Julia, that, that might be the case. But I'll tell you, in the English-speaking world, very little people seem aware of The Jealous Guide in okay. any way, shape, or form. But you're, no, you're exactly right. I mean, this was published in both parts together, I think, in a trade paperback in, uh, in France. And, and I'm sure there are people who love it very much. And I would love to get their feelings on the work as a whole of anyone who has familiarity with it. The fact that it's not well known makes it interesting. But I also like what you just said. It's not bad. It's We're not trying to say that. It's not even bad in the way that, that maybe some people might think Tusk is bad. It, it, this is a thing that is so full of ideas and it's very Jodorowskian. Let's not make any mistake. This is something that feels like it's from the mind of Alejandro Jodorowsky. But it's just... It's a lot, and it's. I would very... never recommend this to somebody if it's, they it's like. A... I'm going to read a Jodorowsky comic. What would you recommend? This is never going to be on my list. It's going uh, to be at the bottom of the list, honestly. Like I would say, you know, <laughs> go in Cal, but you're you're starting it. You're starting high, right? You're going, you know, and I think maybe Eyes of the Cat is where you start. Where yeah, you start. We, we you have know, a professional real. obligation as uh, Jodorowsky podcasters to check this out. <laughs> So we could tell you what what maybe the order, uh, the best order of checking out some of that work is. But I think that's a really good point. Liam, if I put a copy of The Carnivorous Angel in English in your hands tomorrow without any professional responsibility to ever talk about it in the future, do you think you'd read it? I would previously have said no. But, you know, looking at the, the panels on Google while we were discussing it, it actually looks kind of cool. So now I'm kind of morbidly curious to check it out. Uh, even though I found the Jealous God so frustrating, I'm like, well, but th- these pictures seem to make sense. Maybe something happens in here that'll make it worth it. But I suspect I'm wrong because I just don't think there's enough going on in the first thing to make the second thing that great. You know what I mean? Yeah. I want to make sure this is clear as well, that the published version of um, The Carnivorous Angel, uh, is that has been combined with The Jealous God, and there it's called... Uh, La Saga Dalandor. So basically, it's the saga of Alandor, that character who gets banished and things like that. Oh, then when yeah, I was you should re- definitely start with him if it's supposed to be his saga, because we don't meet him until like halfway through. It, well, that's the thing. That's the thing that's like, I just saw that there and I was like, oh, he is the main character. He seemed like that once you were reading through it and that he's a character that you go back to and probably is the only one that seems to have any kind of moral center to him. But it's just like, when you start this story... <laughs> There's kind of nobody that you connect with. Yeah, it's funny to think that it's, this is actually supposed to be a story about a single person and their saga and the, going through this world. But I never really got that sense. And maybe maybe with the second half in hand, that would all kind of crystallize a bit and would be a little bit easier to uh, to uh, to basically comprehend. Um, well, you know, I, I forget the name of the character, but there's the character who's working with the great sumo who has the thing coming out of their head. I think they're, you know what I mean? That could be fucking anybody. I was going to say, you got to be a little more specific. (laughs) I think they orchestrated the assassination of the Oh, it's the Cardinal. Cardinal Cuck Acha. Yeah. So uh, a bunch of the the panels that are online from uh, the the Carnivorous Angel is uh, Allendor basically uh, laying it into the Cardinal. Um, uh, So like, 
that's interesting. I don't know how they ended up in that position from whatever was going on in The Jealous God. Look at you building your interest in the sequel. See? <laughs> now you want to read it. Too bad it's in French. <laughs> well, uh, Liam, I'll give you a copy, and you can uh, use Google Translate to your heart's content, and you can tell us how it all turns out. Nah, I'm good. <laughs> what's, that, what's it got to do work for? And I'm like, no, come on. That's uh, too much. Liam, any final thoughts on The Jealous God? I'm so glad I checked it out. I just felt... Yeah. I was just surprised. Uh, I was surprised how much. Once I realized the art was the issue, I was really surprised how much the art was the issue for me. Because at first, I really was focused on how the narrative wasn't clicking. But then over time, I realized, well, it's an incomplete narrative. If you go through my comic collection, I got a ton of incomplete narratives. I have a bunch of issues of stuff that is not the full story. And they don't bum me out that hard because I get that I just haven't seen the rest of the story. In this case, it was so frustrating because... Not only is it an incomplete narrative, but it's frustrating to read and it's frustrating to look at. And my brain says, this is not cool. It's not fun. I don't I'm not liking this at all. Plus, I'm not attaching to this thing because it's incomplete. It doesn't feel like the full thing. Julia, do you have any final thoughts on The Jealous God? I'm just honestly kind of uh, surprised and happy that you both feel the same way that I did. Because, (laughs) you know, reading it, I felt bad because I really wanted to, you know, you show me Joan Rasky anything and I want to love it. Of course I do. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I just don't connect to this one. I don't. The storytelling is confusing and the art telling, the art is confusing. So you have this double whammy of just, I go, I don't, I mean, your brain, like Liam said, your brain kind of checks out a little bit. You're like, okay, well, unless something really amazing happens at the end here, like I don't understand what any of this is about. And then it just ends and you go, oh, okay, well, I'll take this piece of the story as I get it, but it isn't satisfying. There's a part of me that wonders if Mobius provided the art for this instead. Whether oh, see, we... I don't know, but still, I mean, I think it would definitely improve it, but I think the story is still problematic. Yeah. I, yeah. I think I just, I don't, I don't, maybe just tell what, what Arendelle's story, just like tell us his story and don't mess with everything else. Like, I feel like there's so much going on that it just, it, it feels overwhelming. And I think, as you said, like we could have spinoffs to the end of time, but this isn't a, a universe I particularly want to explore yeah. spinning off into. Mm-hmm. In Cal, mm-hmm. sure. There's a lot. I would like to follow any of those characters on a different path. Uh, Depot, especially. Where's his spinoff? Because he's the best. Um, <laughs> but well, we, that we actually trans- a, a, I know. Please, here's your here's your segue. <laughs> a Depot segue for you. It was such a perfect segue. I had to interrupt you. Uh, if you love Depot, then you may love 1987's The Magical Twins. Uh, plot summary is as such: When the king is taken prisoner by Tartarath, the Dark Master, twins Prince Aram and Princess Mara set out to rescue their father and save the king. Kingdom. But when the use of magic is forbidden, the twins will have to find new ways to prove themselves worthy of restoring the throne. Written, of course, by Alejandro Jodorowsky and illustrated by Georges Bess. Um, upon meeting Jodorowsky in 1986, Bess began the Franco-Belgian comics phase of his career. They formed a productive partnership. They would end up collaborating for uh, the rest of the 1980s and into the 1990s as well. There's actually a lot of Georges Bess and Alejandro Jodorowsky work, which I'm hoping we can cover in the future. And I have to say, after reading The Magical Twins, I'm very interested in in following up and reading a bit more about that. Um, this is, as I said, their first collaboration. It was published in 1987 in the French comics magazine Le Journal de Mickey. Uh, although ostensibly intended for young readers, it contains all the imaginative transformation we expect from a book written by Joe Dorowski. Uh, I have a list of the characters here. Hopefully that might uh, help you if you're trying to remember some of the aspects of the story. But thankfully, particularly in comparison to The Jealous God, 
This is not hard to follow at all. It's uh, It certainly has a lot of unique and interesting elements to it. And the way of storytelling feels very Jodorowsky in that sometimes things happen and you're like, oh, that character could do that? Okay. You just got to accept a lot of things. And we'll talk about the ending as well in just a little bit. But I am very curious, maybe most curious in terms of the works that we're covering today. What does everyone think about The Magical Twins? I'm going to start with you, Liam. The Magical Twins from 1987. Um, I liked it a lot. I really appreciate it. The, there's a real theme here of, um, being faced with danger or obstacles and finding another way around it. I, I guess the way to put it is taking something negative and turning it into something positive. Very you know? much so. Yes. Uh, turning a curse into a blessing or turning a, uh, enemy into a friend or all kinds of stuff like that. And I really appreciate that. I agree. There's this playfulness with the rules, you know. They they one of the the one of the only rules is they can't use their magical bird friend to ride around. But they find all which, these by ways. the way, that I, that I was alluding to before. Yeah, there's yeah. a magical bird that's very similar. Yeah, in this Marina. Yeah. yeah. I think somewhere Jodorowsky it suggested that it was a, a, a relative of the bird from Incall, like in a different <laughs> sort of uh, universe or something. But uh, but yeah, like they they find all these ways to use the bird that isn't exactly riding on the bird. You know what I mean? Like I kind of I kind of appreciate that playfulness with with the rules, quote unquote. Um, there's a lot here to really like. It is weird thinking about it being for children because I always find the narrative of like. You know, oh, we were actually lying to you. It was us doing the thing, <laughs> and we were risking your lives to teach you a lesson. Is like a, a not an uncommon thing in fairy tales. But I've always been like, man, these parents are bad parents, and so it was kind of weird to like see that here because like, because uh, how could you ever trust your parents ever again? Yeah, but exactly. I guess, well, but I guess I'm, you know we got we got Santa Claus going on. So yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. And I also think about uh, Jodorowsky himself and the way that he trained Brontus for the Dune adaptation. One hundred percent. That was exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. <laughs> that for, for Yodorowsky is definitely coming from a place in his view of parents and parenting where children, you know, they grow through some of their adversity. And so part of your job is not to protect them from adversity. And I get that. But this feels a little extreme. You know, I, I'm assuming should they have actually been in danger that at some point the parents would have stepped in and saved them. Uh, nope, but who sorry. knows? But who knows? No, no. But I think the whole point is they're never in danger, right? It's all yeah, manufactured. That's true. That's true. That's true. Because they have, Lyre- you know, I think Lyrena is the, the main character of this, honestly, because it's her sure. taking them yeah, through. Yeah, and yeah, she, yeah, you know, she, because yeah. they're never in danger because she saves them. She saves them every time. They're like, we don't know how to do it. Lyrena, use your powers. And I'm yeah. like, but this is supposed to be you guys doing this. Why has she got to save your butts? That's true. Isn't this, they, you know, but so, so I think, you know, everybody they meet out. are just are just actors in a way, right? right. That are there to ostensibly be a danger, but they're not really. But they so do it's make all... choices in what they're doing. And I think those sure. choices are important sort of lessons in Chodorowsky's mind. And so I think there's a, there is something there in that. And I appreciated all that. Also, the art is beautiful. Like every aspect of it, I really liked, and uh, and I liked sort of the imagination of it all. It was very, it's fairy tale esque, but it's done in a kind of high fantasy sort of mode, and I really appreciated that. Like, there's parts that, though the children might find a way to resolve the issue that isn't just beating the crap out of somebody, the things are still cool. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't think I don't think a a, a young man interested in violent comics. Who was reading this, or or a, ch- a, a a a child of any gender who was like, I came to this for badassery. I don't think you would be let down, even though some of the solutions are not just beat the crap out of them. I think that there's still cool stuff here, even though 
in a way it's subverting some of the norms of like, well, then the children just, you know, conquer this thing through violence. That That's not really the solution. But I think there's enough like neat stuff that I don't think someone would feel tricked who was invested in that sort of thing. You know what I mean? I will say that just tying back into something that we talked about in the first segment of this episode, one of the villains that the they encounter, they they conquer them, they beat them by hugging them and showing yeah. them love. Love it. Love it. And I will say that I am so poisoned by Western style storytelling that every one of these characters, then this is a repeated theme in this book, that uh they're they're evil in some way and these kids, you know, they they deal with them, they battle them, they find some way around this this conflict, and then they become their friends instead. And because I've been so poisoned, all I'm thinking about is, oh, they're going to come back later and actually be a villain. But no, they've been turned to the side of good by these kids, which is such a, it's so nice. And I, nice is probably, this is probably the first time I said the word nice in regards or, to- Or, or like an alternate reading of this is that they've been nice all along. Yeah, and they of were course. just putting on this act, right? So it's really they didn't really do anything. Yeah, so, I suppose I mean that's, that's, that's a more fair. cynical way to look at it. Hey, I'll always go towards the more cynical view. Julia, <laughs> I have one question before I ask your opinion on this overall, which is was Lyrena in on it the whole time? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, she's the she's the catalyst for the whole thing. And as yeah. I said, I think the main character because Mara and Aram are fine, but you 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 know watching Lyrena's action and what she's doing and being able to help them in these very subtle ways and then also just being the comic relief and being kind of silly, uh I really enjoyed that. And, and this is the most wholesome Jodorowsky, yes. I think we've mm-hmm. we've talked about, right? Because yeah, Tusk is wholesome, kind of if you don't mind some elephants dying and stuff and like this <laughs> not like that at all and I think it's so because it, it teaches, you know, the moral, I think, is just kindness will win, right? Just be kind to people, and this will help you along your way, um, which I think is really interesting that, that this is something that we don't really, I don't think kindness really factors into Jodorowsky very often. No. Um, so I think that this is But then is again, he's not writing one. for audiences of people, <laughs> you know, that, that would necessarily appreciate that. This is something that you might find interesting, by the way, Julia, that... So this first appeared in Le Journal de Mickey, which is a French comics magazine that features Disney comics from France and around the world. So this was probably printed alongside Disney-style comics. And it's not that it necessarily fits the Disney mold necessarily, but it's really interesting, particularly when you think about French Disney comics, which tend to be a little bit more complex. Any thoughts in regards to to this, uh, you know... As a Disney property, <laughs> magical twins. I can't like the the Jodorowsky and Disney do not sit side by I side know, in my right? head at all. <laughs> like I now I'm like I want to go to Jodorowsky. I want to go to Disneyland with him. I'll go to Paris. <laughs> I'll go to Paris Disney man. But just to sit here and like watch him, to sit next to him, like it's a small world, and just how I would that would be amazing. I can't picture this at all. Although it is really it is a children's story. It's Absolutely. fine as a children's story. Like there's nothing about it you know if you don't mind like a demon and giant octopus and stuff but they're not really scary and they do turn to the light side so you know that i think having a story it's simple but i think that he is is would be engaged as engaging to a kid as a disney story which i think is interesting right because like this story you have okay like a you know you'd have a mickey comic where you'd have a funny story but there's no moral there but this is not only do they become they're able to win by thinking outside of the box by being kind and then honestly by going they use a lot of like spiritual tricks to win right they have their meditation and they have all these different things so he's bringing this spiritual element into this world which i think 
obviously Disney lacks, like there's not that there at all. But I think that this is, I think it goes back to, we had this, you know, parallel universe. What if Dune, Jodorowsky's Dune had come out before Star Wars, right? right because right. this could have happened. And then this would, it would have been Star Wars adding this spiritual element into it and how mm -hmm. that might've changed everything. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I wish I had read more European Disney comics because there's people who really swear by them. And I wonder if it's, no, honestly, like this, particularly the Donald Duck comics, which people really feel, you know, there are people who have devoted their life to, to, you know, the study of those comics because there's so much complexity within them and the world building within them. And I wonder if that, that comes out of that tradition to a certain extent. Um, I just want to make it clear to people listening who have not checked out The Magical Twins, which I, by the way, I also really enjoy. And I think it is actually a, a really fun, um, very inventive read. And it's it's like the idea of what if a Jodorowsky project was written for young adults? What would that look like? I guess this is what it would look like and what it would kind of feel like. So what happens is that we have these these magical twins, young twins, and they're being trained by their mother. They find out, thanks to Lyrena, this magical bird who rushes in to tell them that their father has been kidnapped by this evil Tartarath, this villain. And so they have to go through several tasks in order to to succeed, uh, Tartarath has put in front of them in order to prove their worth to battle him. And that is the entirety of it. And then, as we basically have set out right at this point, we find out at the end that Tartarath never did anything. Their father had set up these um, the struggles their father and mother, I guess, worked on it together in order to uh, make them take their their practice more seriously to understand their responsibility as future leaders of this uh, of this land, I suppose. And that and and you know, I think we we all have certain reservations in regards to that form of uh, of teaching your children. But in the in the context of this work, at the end, it is a very celebratory and fun thing. Uh, and Lyrina is such an interesting character because just like um, uh, depot in the Incal, it's even more cartoonish than what's around the the them in terms of the art, right? I mean, explicitly more almost Disney-like and very uh, overtly comedic. I want to talk about this art, particularly Wait, because we can had. I, can, can I can I jump in here? Sure. I want to disagree with this. Lyrina's in on it the whole time. Okay, really? great. I, I I was hoping I wasn't sure. See, uh, because at the end I thought Lyrina seemed a little confused, but I'm like, but. Uh, but they were the one who told no, everybody about what was going on. And and she's the one who, she eats the chocolate at the end. Like, that's the whole, like, leading up to that, right? To but that's, but she thought she was doing it for real. And hence the very last page where she says, talks about being, buying the whole story and being so gullible. And the, the point here is that Lyrena has the breakdown that we think the children should have. And it, it for me, the ending confirms my theory, which is that this is also an allegory for parenting. And so Lyrena is the modern parent who's unwilling to make the sacrifices for their children. And part of the story is to shame Lyrena, but also show like if Lyrena. No, but Lyrena like, makes that decision to turn to stone. But, but also they're so mean to her. They're so mean to her the whole story. It's again and again. Oh, I can't do it. I can only do this once a year. And they're like, who cares? Just do it. What is wrong with you? Shut up and do it. <laughs> the whole thing is about being mean to her and then when she finally decides to eat the chocolate she has the arc so like I agree she's the main character but the point I think is to judge modern parenting and she's the modern parent who's very upset at the end and the children are like oh I don't care our, our, our parents just 
deceived us and put our lives in danger. Awesome. And the only person who's upset <laughs> is Lyrena, who loses it, literally has a breakdown. And then the children say, you're such a drama queen, but we love you anyway. <laughs> I mean, that's that's an interesting interpretation. I do have to say that if Lyrena was in on it, then her sacrifice does not have any meaning. Uh, it, the, the turning to stone, right? While in the context of the book, as you read it, you're like, oh my God, that's an amazing, you know, basically giving your life for these yeah. two children so they can accomplish their goal. Um, so but that's I why that, I was... That, I guess I thought, you know, the, the, the king had set it up, right? And yeah. so I think that, you know, she does that whole act and then they're like, oh, you're faking. And she had that, I think it's one of my favorite panels, that little like smile that she gives that she's like, ah, I'm faking, you caught me. Like this oh, grin right? on her face. That's mm. so great. And so like, why else would she do that except... Like, does she really think that she's going to die in that moment? Because I took it as, oh, she's putting on this big act, and now, oh, oh, they got it. The act is revealed, and, like, now everything can be unveiled. Yeah. No, yeah, I think I... she's just dramatic. I think she's the the. <laughs> in fact, in one review, one of the I, – I was reading people's responses to the comic, and one person was really annoyed by her because they're like, why did he write Woody Allen into his book? That that Lyrene is just the neurotic character and everyone else isn't that. And I was like, that's a really weird description, but it's kind of accurate. (laughs) I like like her so much better than... I should like I also, Marinara. I right? also agree. I also think that's true. That's why. That's why I noticed. Like, why are they so mean to Lyrita? If it wasn't for Lyrita, they couldn't do anything. Like, like Lyrita's <laughs> the literally one who does all died the work. In, like, the first challenge. Yeah, right? <laughs> but they're so mean. Every time Lyrita's like, I don't know, guys. Maybe I should. They're like, shut up and do it, stupid bird. <laughs> well, I mean, I can see their perspective too which is oh i can only do this once a year yeah it's like we're all gonna die if you don't do it right now so just do it <laughs> she also has a magical liar on her head that can project things like r2d2 right. style love yeah it. well pretty <laughs> rad let's never we'll never forget that this is still an alejandro jodorowsky work because it gets so weird at times uh liam since we were so hard on the art in the jealous god i want to get your take on george bass's art in this it's very different than mobius's work that we've seen so far it's certainly a lot more palatable what did you think of it overall? I mean, I think it's beautiful. I get that it's it's sort of like basic representational, whereas the other art was more challenging. And so some people might prefer the other thing simply for the sake that it is a different sort of style. But I love this style. It's very cartoony. It reminds me at moments of anime. Like, I'm okay with all that. I think it's beautiful. It's not quite like the brilliance of mobius but like no i i just don't think there are artists who could accomplish what mobius accomplished but when it comes to like sort of a more and and what year did this come out doug 1987 i think this is actually really amazing for 1987 now granted when it comes to 1987 i'm not reading as much euro art but if you compare this to like what was going on at marvel at in 1987 i think this is way better than what was kind of popular at the time in it for my taste um, I haven't had much experience with Georges Bess as a artist. Uh, I know that he has done adaptations of Frankenstein and Dracula. You can find art from that online, and they're actually extraordinarily looking. Uh, very, very different than the art in this, as you can probably imagine. Uh, some of the work that I see, if it, and again, just have looking him up over the last few days, actually does show some similarities to Mobius. But then again, I guess any artist in that area of the world in that time period is going to show some of that influence. But I do think that the art very much suits the story being told here. It's weird at times, certainly things like giant, you know, octopuses and, you know, the the demons and angels and creatures that grow every time you hit them, all that sort of thing. That weirdness, I think, is brought to life in as palatable a way as is possible. 
But I love that that's the balance from the weird ideas of Jodorowsky to something that would still be appropriate for, you know, a child of like 11 or 12 or 13. How about you, Julia? What did you think of the art in this? I think it's, it's, I really like it. I think it's really uh, fun and it makes, it is, it, it does feel Jodorowskian, but it also feels like it's safe enough for kids. Um, and I don't really think of him as kid friendly, uh, but I feel like this is. Um, and I think, I think, you know, we, we talking about the jealous God and how we were dropped in the middle of the story and it all felt so confusing. And it's like, well, the same here, right? You're dropped into a world. We don't know where we are. We don't know who these characters are, but I feel like you only get a very brief example of what their lives are at the palace before the adventure begins. So right. it's not like you're giving a lot of backstory, uh, but I don't ever feel confused. And I always, you know, it's, it's, this is of course more straightforward, but you do have that kind of El Topo person on you know people on a quest they have to go through these challenges to get to the end and they're going to reach enlightenment the end and etc etc um but i think the art for this is really nice i think i I really enjoyed it and and especially coming off of the jealous god where my eyes were so like oh what is happening uh it was so pleasant to be like okay this you know everybody looks friendly and it looks uh nice and it's uh it's just a it's it's wholesome fun (laughs) I, i worry that listeners might think that oh they, they like this because it's palatable and other stuff they don't like because it's not palatable. Well, then you obviously have not been listening to episodes of Jodowski up to this point. I think we all are very happy to accept work that is not necessarily meant for mainstream audiences or mm-hmm. is difficult. But it's it, I, I do think I felt that same sort of relief that you were communicating just then, Julia, that after The Jealous God, this the coherency was, was nice. But also, I just felt so much more engaged with the characters and their exploits yeah. and their journey. And, and it did feel, and I'm glad that you brought up that idea of kind of journey towards spiritual enlightenment that you find in both El Topo and the Holy Mountain. It does feel like a... I was going to say sanitized. That's not a fair word. It feels like a, a version of that on display here that, might, that could appeal to uh, people who are just kind of you know, trying to find their place in the world. But I also like the, the fact that the kids do uh, accomplish some things themselves, like f- trying to figure out the puzzle with the knives falling down and all that sort of thing. But how revolutionary is it for Jodorowsky to say, you know, kids' stories don't, you don't need a path to spiritual enlightenment. Yeah. Right? Like that's, that's mm-hmm. not needed, but it's something that you can add to it that for him, I'm sure adds a whole other dimension. And he says, why can't kids understand this? Of course they can. You know, why can't, you know, this is something that he feels he can bring to a mass audience, which I think is great. I would also like to mention uh, the spinoff in my head that I want. Mm-hmm. I want the Lyrena Depot spinoff where they go yeah. on adventures together. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I also love that, you know, talking about world world building and the kind of overwhelming sense of world building that we saw in The Jealous God, there's world building here as well. You could still tell more stories in this world from what we see. And I think that's that's just something that Jodorowsky has inherent in his storytelling is that he wants to create something that feels fleshed out, even if, like I said uh, from at the beginning here, even if he holds back a lot of information that in a work, a Hollywood work, they would tell you right off the bat that the that say what are all of Lyrena's powers why can she only use them once a year right like they would try to over explain everything in this uh, particular work you're just supposed to accept it and at some point when i was reading it i was like all right i'm just going to accept it all the way through right up into the twist ending which probably seemed unbelievable in 1987 but to me coming at it from 2022 i'm like oh those parents are bad parents. I'm not sure. <laughs> That's a great way to teach them a lesson. Uh, finishing up here, uh, st- sticking with you, Julia, any final thoughts on the magical twins? I think I really enjoyed it. 
And I think yeah. if you're an adult Jodorowsky fan who has children and you wanted to introduce them to him, this is a very great way to do it because I yeah. think it, it's it's everything that you love about Jodorowsky, but in a kid-friendly format. And I, it sounds so wrong coming out of my mouth like that, but it it's really true. And I, and I I think going I didn't really know much about going in, but I think you know when if if you had said to me, "Hey, Julia, there's this comic that he did that's really family friendly," I'd be like. I don't know, man. Like yeah, everything right? I love Me about too. Jodorowsky yeah, yeah. is really punk rock and it's really rebellious and it's really like making people feel uncomfortable and like this isn't that at all. And yet it still feels Jodorowsky. So I'm like, I don't know how he did it, but he managed to keep himself in a way that pleases me, that doesn't feel like he's sold out or washed out. It's still him. It's just in a kid format. Do you think that this would be a good introduction for people for Jodorowsky? Like, oh, I'm really interested in his work. Would you give them a copy of the Magical Twins to be like, well, this will be, you know, your starter kit and then we can move on to other things? If it was a kid, yeah. <laughs> if it was adult, probably not. But I would like I would give this to my nephew. He's 10. Like he would get into this and be fine. I don't think there's anything that would, uh, you know, that is meant for children, right? So yeah, absolutely. And then and then once they're finished, they're like, oh, the person who made this, have they made anything else? And you're like, yeah, let's watch The Holy yeah. Mountain. <laughs> well, I, it's similar. I My first uh, my first John Waters movie was Hairspray. Right, right the, of and course. Then, and then I was like, That's oh, I love comparison. Hairspray. Let mm. me watch Pink Flamingos. Yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I still love him. He's one of my favorites. But man, that fucking rocked my world. I was... Wow. That's Not that's so prepared. funny because my first John Waters was polyester. So then I went from <laughs> polyester to hairspray and was like, how is this the same guy? What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> Liam, do you have any final thoughts on the Magical Twins? I mean, yeah, it, I would give this to a kid too. In fact, you know, I was reading reviews of this on Goodreads and the number of people who were like, yeah, I was checking this out and I don't know, it seemed really simple, like it was for kids or something. <laughs> yeah, motherfucker, it's for kids. That's what it is. Like, Jesus Christ. You know what I mean? Like, I don't I don't understand what the issue is here. It, it, my man did a thing for kids and it's good. I, I mean, I guess if it was like a young enough kid, it might be a little dark, but I think for most kids, this is entirely approachable, totally fun. Fun. Parts of it are funny. A lot of it's like, you know, adventuresome. I just think it's really great. And I, I, I get that some adults are just like immediately turned off by simple things, especially adults who are like, I'm delving into the works of Alejandro Jodorowsky. <laughs> if you didn't know this was for kids, this might be like, what the heck was that? But like, it's good. You know, the other thing he did for kids that we that we experienced, Tusk, was like not so good, you know? So mm. like I'm glad that he this is like an ex example of him doing something that still feels very much like him, but is clearly appropriate for and even good for children. So, I don't know. I thought it was great. I loved it. I'd love to read more stuff like this. I think its context of being published originally in that journal, Demicky, which uh, is specifically for obviously children, then you know no one who read it initially would have been under any illusion that it would be right. anything but a story for kids. Yeah, but you know once you're reading a trade paperback from humanoids, you're probably like, hey, it's Jodorowsky. Let's see what he's got up here. Well, what do you mean? You know, yeah, I could see. I guess how people might yeah. come at it wrong. Oh, I'm I mean, there, there was a guy who was like, yet another example of the failure of European fantasy to live up to American <laughs> fantasy. Get oh the God. fuck out of my face. <laughs> But I think I think that one of the things, you know, the thing that we, you know, when we introduced Jodorowsky at the beginning of this episode, you, you list off all of these things that he does, right? And and he's this total wild card. You have no idea going in what he's going to give you. And that's in any format, any of his books, any of his comics, any mm -hmm. anything. And I think this, you know, even just talking about the three we talked about today, 
they kind of seem like the work of the same person, but they kind of don't, right? They're kind of just so different that I think to, you don't, I think the surprise of what he gives you is part of what I love about him. I also think that people who are only familiar with El Topo and the Holy Mountain have a vision of the kind of work that Jodorowsky does, which we are discovering very quickly. I mean, we probably already knew that his work, it, it commands a lot more different kind of tones and genres and, and even audiences than that. Speaking of work for children, <laughs> on the next episode of Jodorowsky, <laughs> we will be watching, we're going to be going back to a film, uh, one of Jodorowsky's most beloved film, really his comeback, I would guess you would call it. That's 1989's Santa Sangre. Uh, we are also going to be looking at the 2011 documentary, The World of Santa Sangre, and really everything connected to Santa Sangre. Uh, this is a movie I have not seen for several years. Uh, it's a, according to Wikipedia at least, uh, it's a 1989 avant-garde surreal horror film directed by Alejandro Jodorowsky, written by Jodorowsky, along with Claudio Argento and Roberto Leone. On the next episode of Jodorowsky, Santa Sangre. How excited, Julia, are you to tackle Santa Sangre? Oh, very. I think this movie is great. Uh, I don't know if I would call it a horror film. Mm. I would feel like you could kind of sort of call all of his movies a horror film if you wanted to. Like, there's horrific imagery, but I don't feel like that's what this is. But that's okay. We could talk about that next time. I love this movie. I love, uh, we'll talk, I mean, you'll, you're going to get this so much from me in future episodes, so we might right? as well start here. <laughs> his sons, man. His sons are so good. So just starting out with uh, with the first of like his son's starring roles. Here we go. I can't wait. Yeah, This is going to be our kind of explicit introduction to the extended Jodorowsky family, which we're going to be seeing a lot of going forward. Liam, uh, are you excited to check out Santa Sangre? Definitely. Very excited. Yeah. It, it's a... Uh... Yeah, look, I, I love the fact that we are looking at Jodorowsky's comic work. We're going to be doing a lot more of it in the future as well. But uh, I think when we started this project, our focus was on films. And when we're talking about some of the big Jodorowsky films, for me, the three are The Holy Mountain, El Topo, and Santa Sangre. And that's with the understanding that I haven't seen a lot of his recent work, even still. Yeah. Once, uh, you've, so, seen, once you've seen Ed Lips Poetry and, and Dance of Reality, those are gonna, it's going to be the top five. It's going to be the top five. Hey, I'm excited for that as well. But for now, <laughs> very, very uh, excited to check out Santa Sangre and, and really do a deep dive into it because I know there's a lot of writing about it, a lot of, of, I mean, there's just a lot of content about it generally. So on the next episode of Jodowowski, 1989's Santa Sangre, I want to thank everybody for helping me put together this episode of Jodowowski, my wonderful co-host. Uh, Julia, I want to start with you today. What have you been up to recently? Where can people find you? I know you've had some recent announcements online. Uh, what's going on in the Marquesiverse? Uh, well, yeah, Horror Movie Survival Guide still going strong. We're doing collaborations with uh, Joe Dawowski and other podcasts that we love. Mm -hmm. We always try to do something new and fun, so that's always going on. Um, I am also going to be starting this month a series that's to, it's Horror Movie Survival Guide in collaboration with the George A. Romero Foundation, uh, which will be a video uh, show called Horror X. And it is about uh, women in horror. So I am Ooh. so excited. I never thought in my life I would do anything in collaboration uh, with the Romero verse, uh, but here I am. So I'm very, very excited about that. And where can people find you online? I'm at Julia C. Marchesi on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Um, I also have my, my Stephen King Dollar Baby, I Know What You Need, mm -hmm. which is still in post-production. People are always amazed at how long movies take. And I'm like, yeah, they take a long time, man. It takes a long time. They're like, is it done yet? I'm like, not not yet. <laughs> still going. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm very excited uh, for, the, for everyone to see that. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. I, I'm hesitant always to ask you about it because I know that you've been working so hard, but I know that once it's available to the world that you will be, be hopefully telling everybody about it and we'll definitely be talking about it here. Yes. <laughs> you can, of course, also follow HorrorX on Twitter at G-A-R-F HorrorX. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes as well. Liam O'Donnell, as I live and breathe, you, sir, are always doing a lot of work as well over at Cinepunks. Uh, where can people check out your work? What, you've, what have you been up to? Well, um, I just recently published a review of the new uh, Life of Agony documentary, The Sound of Scars. Uh, and of course, I have the uh, two podcasts I'm on, and we just added a new podcast to the network called The Carnage Report that specifically focuses on n- new things in horror, both new films, but also just generally like production news, festivals, mm. all kinds of stuff like that. So, Interesting. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that, especially because I'm on a horror podcast that almost exclusively discusses the past. So <laughs> so I like the balance of having someone, because I, I care about new stuff, and I, and I think there are a lot of people who do, so I appreciate that. Um, if you want to check out that and anything else that I'm involved in, they can, of course, head to cinepunks.com, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, uh, we're also on social media, Cinepunk, C-I-N-E, P-U-N-X, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if they want to dive into the archive of this show, Doug, they can, of course, head to cinemasmorgasbord.com and follow us on Twitter at cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R-G. You can follow Liam on Twitter at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. And I'm on there as well at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. And as Liam mentioned, at cinemasmorgasbord.com, you can check out all of our other podcasts, uh, not only Joe Dawowski, but also podcasts devoted to Paul Bartel, Eric Roberts, of course, uh, George Kennedy, et cetera, et cetera. Check that out at cinemasmorgasbord.com. If you're enjoying Joe Dawowski, why don't you review it on your podcast provider of choice? Or, hey, if you don't want to do that, why don't you just tell a friend, tell them that if they enjoyed Joe Dorowski or have been curious about Alejandro Jodorowsky, there's a terrific podcast that just tells you everything that you could possibly need to know about every single piece of his work, and it continues to grow and grow. Thank you for listening to this episode of Jodorowsky. We're going to be back very soon with 1989's Santa Sangre. Good night, everyone. Yeah.